commercials, no subscriptions, no network, no rules, and at the end of the day, my friends, no comparison. And tonight it appears no problem with uh, the blog talk, so thank God. It's, uh, you know, we've reached uh, something, I don't know, you know, you know we've reached the depths when, uh, when, when uh, the fact that we're just going on the air is, is reason for celebration, but that's, uh, that was, as Edwardson can attest, that was the reaction just now when... <laughs> The show started up. Um, uh, yeah, so we're back. We were we were on last week, of course. Uh, we had missed a couple of weeks ago. We had this crazy problem with Blog Talk. Edward was here on the phone, um, and it wasn't broadcasting, and we bumped the episode to tonight. So here we are live uh, on August 14th for what uh, an episode I've been looking forward to for a while. I was looking forward to it uh, when we sat down to do it a couple of weeks ago, and now we're finally up and running uh I'm really looking forward to digging into it. I sometimes find the best shows I do, as weird as this sounds, and I don't even know, uh, I have to somehow figure out where they are, but I've had other episodes where everything went haywire, and like we didn't tape, or we had to tape an hour or two later, or something like that, and it was like, always seemed like those were better, somehow the show wound up, wound up like really good, so let's hope that continues tonight. Our guest <laughs> is Dr. Edward Guimont, is that right, did I get it right? That's you, Perfect. Nailed Excellent. It. All right. All right. I was laughing about the end of last week's show because I had forgotten after <laughs> he told me. And I'm like, oh, fuck. That was the first thing I asked him before we went on the air. Uh, our guest is Dr. Edward Guimont. He is an uh, adjunct professor at UConn, adjunct history uh, – let me start over. Adjunct <laughs> history professor at the University of Connecticut. He's got a focus on British Empire, nationalism, Great Zimbabwe, mythic history, cryptids. Lovecraft, and uh, we have a shared interest in the weird and wacky world of the flat earth, so we're going to get into that. Oh, yeah. He's not a flat earther, folks. Uh, <laughs> neither am I, as you sh- should hopefully know, but he's a genuine academic, a doctor, uh, an academic doctor, or whatever you'd call it, um, you know, who shares my appreciation for this strange, bizarre conspiracy theory, and he knows all kinds of shit that I uh, didn't know about. Um, that I've been reading his stuff. We kind of send each other links. Uh, There's a very, I'm not, I'm not scholastic. So, uh, <laughs> but if, I, if there was a scholastic circle of people who were looking at the flat Earth, there would be he and I as we exchange links. Uh, with all that, yeah, I said, think it might be us and and 
Not yeah, I think so. I think so. <laughs> we need to find others for our circle. But we, uh, with all yeah. that said, uh, Dr. Edward Guimont, thank you uh, for thank you for your patience a couple of weeks ago, and thanks for coming on uh, Been All of America tonight. Oh yeah, it's my pleasure. It's uh, I think we met about what, a year and a half ago through actually I guess you can technically say we met through Lauren Coleman. So that's uh, uh, an exciting avenue. But yeah, at the cryptozoology conference, I remember. Met, or you mentioned that you were into flat earthers, I think, or one of us men. So I think uh, the seeds were sown there. And yeah, it's been great, you know, chatting with you since then. And uh, I mean, like you said, it's <laughs> if if you put all of us together, it would be kind of a flat earth line, not so much a flat earth circle. So, I mean, really, I think you're the only other person I've been sending stuff back and forth to with any regularity. There's a couple others I've you know, exchanged a few emails with, but not really anything of substance. But. Yeah, it's very strange. It's very strange. Uh, we'll get into that in a moment. Let's do the bio background. Yeah, you're right. That's how I met you, uh, through Lauren's um, International Cryptozoology Conference, uh, I guess a couple – was it last year? Yeah, it was last yeah, year. Yeah, so, yeah. <laughs> Time's so weird now. Uh, yeah, it was last uh, last April. So, yeah, about a year a little, year and a few months. Uh and you presented on, on the Mokele Mememebe story and, and British colonialization, and we'll talk about that uh, tonight as well. But, you know, give folks the bio, the background. Who is Dr. Edward Guimont, and uh, how did you how did you get interested in all this? Well, it's funny because uh, uh, well, it's still funny hearing myself referred to as doc. I just realized earlier today that it's only been about a year since I've become a doctor, so I'm fresh off the presses, so to speak. But, uh, yeah, it's uh, – I mean – I grew up uh, pretty interested in history, uh, in science. Uh, actually, I was big into not so much Bigfoot. That was never really interested me, but uh, Loch Ness Monster as a kid. I think that was kind of maybe the avenue into it. Uh, I remember also when we first got the Internet as a kid, I think the first website I remember going to was in retrospect. I think it was uh, – uh, who's that? Uh, Richard T. Hoagland with his face on Mars stuff. So <laughs> Richard a lot T. Of Hoagland. Yes, yeah, Richard, yeah, T. Richard Hoagland, yeah. T. Hoagland. Yeah. <laughs> but I later found out, I think he actually has a Connecticut connection. I think he used to run a radio show, or he was involved in a radio station around here. So there must have been, there must be something in uh, the air for sure. But uh, <laughs> uh, but yeah, so it was interesting. Uh, UFOs, ancient aliens, uh, Loch Ness monster. Uh, as a kid, I mean, it is funny to think that uh, I, I absorbed all this stuff through the internet, like at a very young, impressionable age, and you know, seeing all the talk now about how the internet is radicalizing young people and spreading all this stuff, uh, it is interesting to think this is there at the internet from the start. But also, <laughs> I say, I guess it is a fine line between me going into like actual history and me. I could have gone the other way and become, you know, one of the people at the Flat Earth Conference or something. But, uh, uh, but yeah, but I was interested in history. Uh, I went to college for it, decided that I uh, should keep going on to grad school after, actually, at the urging of some of my professors in college. It didn't really hit me until uh, they brought it up. So I kept going through uh, uh, grad school into the Ph.D. program at the University of Connecticut, my dissertation was originally something very different. It was on uh, uh, basically nationalism in the late British Empire and the country that is now Zimbabwe. And as research into that, uh, I kind of 
you know, name or kind of came across some little reference to Great Zimbabwe, and then that started spiraling all this stuff out. Uh, this idea that this ancient city in Central Africa had, you know, for decades, the Europeans, the British, the Rhodesians had thought it was, you know, this ancient outpost of ancient white explorers. And so from that little like thing I came across all of a sudden, literally an entirely new dissertation jumped up out of that. And then through that, just looking at the history of these alternative uh, archaeological, alternative pseudo-history views and how the project of the British Empire, but also before them, the Dutch, the Portuguese, even the Arabs all had these different uh, historical views of how to create their own history to justify their colonial presence in Africa. From that came uh, my dissertation, and then through the dissertation really came the Mokele Mbembe stuff. Uh, I think actually the first uh, thing or kind of a cryptozoological aspect related to this uh, in the autobiography of Ian Smith, who was the uh, prime minister of the white government of Rhodesia, he mentions that there's this, or there was allegedly this species of, you know, like a human-like hominid that, you know, some Rhodesian officer found in the jungle and brought to him. And, you know, they had like mutated feet that were adapted to hanging from trees. But even these, you know, half-human, half-hominid people could, you know, instinctively understand that he was the rightful ruler of Rhodesia. So it's kind of odd to think that (laughs) this guy, this prime minister, this world-recognized figure is just writing in his biography, yeah, there's these weird, you know, cryptids in Rhodesia, and they justify me being a ruler. But uh, uh, from there also, I kind of started, I forget exactly how I did come across it, but uh, talking about how... uh, or a couple of authors in the 1950s are talking about this idea that uh, from the ancient Middle East, uh, you know, modern-day Iraq, modern-day Lebanon and Israel, these explorers had gone to Central Africa and built this city and then, you know, had brought back gold and stuff from this region to the Middle East. And this one author, uh, Willie Lay, an interesting figure, uh, he was friends with Arthur C. Clarke. He worked uh, first for Fritz Lang in uh, the 1930s German film industry. He worked for oh, wow. Disney uh, for a time after. He was friends with uh, Von Braun, the German rocket engineer. So this is a guy who has a lot of fingers and a lot of uh, both science, but also, I guess we could say, science fiction pies. And that's one thing that interests me, too, how a lot of this is an example of science and science fiction kind of influencing each other. But uh, he was writing this book where he's talking about the Babylon gate uh, or uh, uh, the Ishtar gate rather in ancient Babylon, which is this really remarkable archeological find. But uh, he's talking about how on this uh, uh, ancient structure, there are these two animals that are you know, a repeating motif. One of them is the aurochs, which is this real existing animal from uh, ancient Europe that actually only went extinct, I think, about four or 500 years ago. So it was alive until relatively recently. But the other is this dragon, the searush. So his argument was that if one of these animals, the aurochs, was a real thing and had, uh, you know, lived in Europe far away from Babylon, the searush probably was real. And his argument was it must have come from uh, 
Central Africa, where these uh, you know ancient Middle Eastern people had gone to build Great Zimbabwe, and also right. where you know people nowadays are reporting seeing living dinosaurs. So it was really interesting to see this one guy who himself plays a major role. I think. I believe he actually is the guy who invented uh, the rocket countdown, uh, you know, before blastoff. So this guy oh, wow. who is mainly known for, you know, this like rocket program was all of a sudden combining Great Zimbabwe and Mokele Mbembe and you know, the Ishtar Gate and all this stuff all of a sudden. That's wild. Coming to it. Yeah. It's just, and I think when I made that connection, I think that was the impetus that made me go, I got to build more stuff off of this uh, and look into this deeper. Uh, from there in particular, uh, uh, you know, as I mentioned, I've been in, from the start, basically, I've been into looking at this fringe stuff. So I've always kind of laughed at the lizard people and the David Icke, you know, the idea that these reptilians, you know, shapeshifters are, uh, uh, you know, related to us. Uh, one of my friends from college, as a birthday gift, he gave me David Icke's book, uh, is it the biggest secret where he kind of, you know, he invented all this, uh, or oh, basically, yeah. it, you know, where he, it's, I guess it's not Popularized. the first time he talked about the lizards, but, uh, this was like where he lays out the whole lizard ideology and all that stuff. So I was flipping through, uh, uh, Ike's bit, the biggest secret. And I noticed he mentions both, uh, great Zimbabwe and basically, you know, Lay's idea that, it's these, you know, Middle Easterners hundreds of years or thousands of years ago who went and built this city. But he's talking about ancient aliens, too, specifically, uh, uh, what's uh, Zechariah Sitchin, the 12th planet. Oh, uh, the Anunnaki and all that? Yep, yeah. So it's actually David Icke's lizard people come from the Anunnaki. And I was looking back through the Anunnaki. Sitchin is citing Lay's book on the Ishtar Gate. So all of a sudden, it's essentially uh, the lizard people conspiracy. This is a, you know, not even really a spiritual descent. It's a pretty direct descendant of these Mokele, Mbembe, and Great Zimbabwe uh, legends that Willie Lay, this science and science fiction guy, had packaged together. So it, I That's felt kind of like a conspiracy yeah. theorist, basically, you know, making, you know, tying all these webs together. But uh, uh definitely one of the more fun things I've uh, done in grad school. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I remember watching your presentation at the uh, at the conference, and I was like, holy shit, this this is wild. And then uh, I think it was <laughs> after that. Yeah, you were outside talking to somebody, and some I think you mentioned the flat earth thing. Because I, yeah, I wouldn't have, yeah. <laughs> like any good, <laughs> like any proper flat earth enthusiast, uh, I wouldn't have brought it up. Otherwise. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> otherwise. <laughs> Uh, so yeah, it must have, some it, of them go out of their way though. So it is. I know. <laughs> I know. It's an interesting. <laughs> yeah, there are some. Yeah, I, what I think is like if they want to, if they want to proselytize, they'll they'll bring it up right away. But if you reverse it on them and you're like, are you a flat earther? A lot of them shirk. Yeah. Because <laughs> the guy I knew at, that what I went to high school with, he became a flat earther. I recently got into it on Facebook with him because I. He was arguing about something else, and I'm like, are you still a flat earther? And he was like, he, didn't, he kept evading the question. So it was like, oh, okay, that's a yes. <laughs> I'll say, um, I, I don't want to get into too many specifics, but I will say I did have a flat earther student once. I mean, I mean maybe more, but there was one student who brought it up in class. and <laughs> Just like, isn't wow. it strange that, you know, uh, airline pilots say that if they look out the window, the earth is flat. And what do you think about that? <laughs> Yeah. yeah. All right. It's always like unnamed. <laughs> well, yeah. 
It's always like people at NASA. It's never anyone. Yeah. yeah. So what is so to, to sort of backtrack on this? So the great, from what I could gather, now you, uh, I read your some of your papers and stuff uh, that you've put out there. That I'm talking about. And we'll put the links up here uh, yeah, yeah. at the Banal America site. So the hunting dinosaurs in Central Africa piece uh, that kind of talks about your some of the stuff you were just mentioning. Now this this great Zimbabwe, from what I could gather, I'm going to have you extrapolate more on it. It was a it was an old. It was like a legitimate city, right in Zimbabwe that yeah, was abandoned yeah. for some reason a long time ago. And then every, from what I gather from what you were saying just now, like every time different uh, colonizers, yeah, colonizers would come, yeah, yeah. explorers and colonizers would come to the area. Then they would find the city, and since it was abandoned, they'd be like, "Oh, that clearly came from us, the Dutch or the English." Or whatever, exactly, wherever they yeah. were from, right? Is that kind of the so? But but, but that's my. I warn folks as we go into this that, that Dr. Gimont's <laughs> a, a genuine history professor here, and I'm I'm just a schlub, so I'll try, <laughs> you know, try and keep up oh, with him. Well, also, well, also keeping it real for the folks who are like me. So so is that kind of the idea of of this of this of this uh, city, and and sort of give us the. Give us your learned background on on this location <laughs> yeah, no, because there's so much about exactly. lost cities and shit that are that that's that's like such a. I mean, you talk about like lost creatures and stuff, which we're going to get into as the course of the evening goes on. But lost cities is another sort of interesting thing, and this kind of ties into that. So talk about Great Zimbabwe. Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, I mean, everything. Yeah, it uh, was pretty much correct. It was built probably about 900 years ago in the country that uh, is now called Zimbabwe, and the country itself is actually named after the city. Uh, in the 1960s, uh, the nationalist movement that was opposing uh, the Rhodesian government and basically had a meeting and floated a few different ideas of what they would name their independent country when they kicked out the Rhodesians and they decide on Great Zimbabwe. Uh, the term Great Zimbabwe uh, was chosen or because uh, the word Zimbabwe itself essentially means stone houses. And so there are uh, hundreds, if not thousands, of Zimbabwe's around. But Great Zimbabwe is uh, by far the largest. It used to be uh, royal capital. Uh, I think I mentioned it's uh, the Shona people of what's now uh, Zimbabwe are the ones almost – certainly who created I mean, I don't think there's any major uh, dispute of this. So this indigenous African group made it. Uh, it was probably abandoned about, uh, I think, around the year 1500, roughly, give or take. Uh, again, not entirely known why, but probably because a combination of population growth and environmental change just made it difficult to provide the city's population with water. Uh, but this was a major royal uh, administrative center. It's not a gold mine itself, but it was a place where gold that was mined around the empire was taken and collected. Uh, from there, it was taken to the coast in what's now Mozambique, uh, and it was put out along the uh, Indian Ocean trade. So really, Great Zimbabwe, as a center of gold trade, is basically the westernmost part of this huge trade network that goes all the way to China. Uh, uh, usually it's not, you know, no one probably would have sailed, or very few people probably would have sailed directly from China uh, to the port of Great Zimbabwe or vice versa. But in terms of interconnected trade routes, this was a very uh, widespread, very uh, uh, active uh, 
uh, trade network linking people from India, Persia, the Arab world, East Africa, China. Uh, and so as the great Zimbabwe empire kind of declined due to uh, uh, these probably uh, environmental pressures, the Arab traders that were uh, very active along the east coast of Africa moved in. And to them, again, they're going back to not so much uh, the Quran, interestingly enough, but actually uh, to the Bible, although uh, uh, I think the specific story is in the Bible, but uh, it's a figure who's revered in Islam as well, King Solomon, uh, who, even though he lived in what's now Israel, he was part of this uh, expedition to a land called Ophir, where he got his uh, uh, gold and riches that he brought back to uh, uh, build the temple in Jerusalem. So the Arabs moved in as Muslims. They you know, say, okay, well, actually, this was built by uh, you know, our ancestors, in quotes, uh, the people of the Bible, uh, the ancient Israelites under Solomon. See, if you look in the scripts, it says that uh, uh, this was Ophir. Therefore, you know, we have the right as, you know, the religious descendants of King Solomon to this region. The interesting right. thing is this is going on as the Portuguese become the first Europeans to arrive. The very first Portuguese expedition arrives right around the time when the empire is collapsing, but or I think a bit after, but the local Africans, I mean, they remember uh, that, you know, the city used to be populated. They tell the Portuguese, yeah, Africans built this. So the very earliest Portuguese or uh, expedition reports, now this is an African city, used to be a royal center. A few decades later, by the time the next Portuguese expedition arrives, by then the narrative has already changed to being one of built by King Solomon. This was actually the city of Ophir. This is uh, huh. uh, so even within the span of a few decades, under the uh, I guess Arab, we can say kind of uh, the mix of economic and religious uh, uh, missionary work, the narrative has changed. That's wild. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's it's crazy that yeah, this is uh, that that can happen. You think like it's just amazing how history can change like that. Uh, how, yeah. I guess how we figure it out later too. You know what I mean? It's like, uh, I assume it, <laughs> well, I guess it took generations for us to figure out, Oh no, wait, this is what really was the story. Okay, here yeah. With this, with this city. Well, that's also interesting because, uh, very like by the, when Europeans, they don't really rediscover it until the 1870s. Uh, I mean, other people in the area had seen it, but the outside Europeans, it's basically lost for, uh, you know, three, 400 years or so. When it's rediscovered in the 1870s, it quickly becomes uh, part of the territory that's claimed by Cecil Rhodes, the, uh, you know, the diamond magnate. Uh, he sponsors a few archeologists, uh, to go study there. The first archaeologist he sends is not actually trained in archaeology at all. Uh, he's just, you know, damaging the site, just rummaging around, just, you know, doing all So he actually causes so much damage, even Rhodes, who is not that interested in historical preservation, basically recalls him. The second guy he sends, you know, basically just says, yeah, you're right, this was actually, you know, built by Europeans, therefore we have a claim to it. Uh, that's that. About 10 or so years after that, there's a third expedition of archaeologists, uh, and this is the one they conclude this is indeed an African city. This was not built by uh, uh, 
you know, uh, King Solomon. This was not built by Arabs. So very quickly, within about 35 years, the professional archaeological committee or a community settles on, you know, with not too much controversy that this is an African city built by Africans a few hundred years ago, but it's the public, not just in Rhodesia, not just in South Africa, back in Britain, back in the United States, where a lot of this funding is also located. The public and the politicians are the ones who are basically pushing this narrative of, oh yeah, this is uh, you know King Solomon's city. But among uh, archaeologists, very quickly, relatively in terms of the city's discovery, it gets settled pretty fast. Hmm. Well, that's that. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, that kind of like that connects to a lot of esoteric stuff in a way, where it's like, the, oh yeah, yeah, you know, science proves a lot of stuff, or, or I guess I don't want to say debunks, but sort of solves a lot of mysteries, but stuff still it it stays a mystery, you know, like the right. I think a lot about like uh, like Loch Ness monster, where it's like, yeah, they did yeah. that environmental DNA study last year. It seemed pretty cut and dry mm-hmm. that it's almost certainly probably an eel if if there is any sort of thing, but it's like that'll never <laughs> the Loch Ness yeah. monster will live forever, man. Like exactly. you know, some of them, some of the headlines were like Loch Ness monster dead. It's like, oh man, Loch Ness monster is gonna outlive all of us, dude. It'll always be in there. <laughs> As long as there's a well, kid right. that believes in the Loch Ness monster, it it is alive, man. Well, exactly, and I think this also ties in. Like you saying that there, there's always going to be a kid who believes in it. No, I think a part of it is, and I, you know, like you, I'm, you know, well, maybe I, I want to put words in. I would say that I would describe myself as a uh, a sympathetic skeptic, and that, you know, yeah, most exa- of this, yeah, I'm that, not a that huge. That me to a T. Yeah, I'm yeah. very interested in the community. I'm very interested in how. They think these things and they believe it. But, I mean, it's, it's fun a lot. You know, it's fun to speculate about this stuff. And I think that's really the draw. You know, if you're having fun thinking about whether it's ancient cities or aliens or the Loch Ness Monster, you know, having academics come in and you do the, well, actually, you know, everything that you're interested in is wrong and you're an idiot for believing. I mean, I think that's a big thing. I mean, I think especially uh, uh, I think Neil deGrasse Tyson is – a, ba- a big example of this kind of, you know, you know, fussy, uh, you know, stodgy guy who's let me give all the scientific uh, explanations about why you're stupid and just. Uh, right. I right. think this that kind of approach is really counter and like whether it's him and the flat earthers or Bill Nye and the creationists. I mean, I think, I think for m- many reasons that maybe are beyond talking about here, but I think in the science community, I think it's become so so much its own thing that they don't necessarily have not, not just the social, I mean, or not the social skills, but just the understanding of kind of social sciences of humanities of how to explain this kind of thing. I think actually uh, North Carolina State University, there was a study there uh, uh, not too, re- I think it was maybe three years ago, but they were talking about uh, educating students about uh, Bigfoot and talking about how if you're only laying out purely the science facts, then that's not good at convincing, you know, or going into, you know, uh, believers, whether it's Bigfoot or aliens or anything about why these things are wrong. But you have to actually look at, like, cultural context. You have to bring in, uh, you know, kind of like softer sciences, so to speak, the social aspects and go into that. And that's much more effective about going into uh, 
you know, why these uh, pseudoscience beliefs aren't necessarily correct. Right, right. And the so the Mokele Mememba, uh, which folks who don't know what it is, is kind of like this idea uh, that there's a living, a still living dinosaur. It's kind of like uh, they made a movie. I was a kid. I think uh, you you must know the movie. Like uh, fuck, what was it called? It wasn't called Babe. It was something like that. It was a uh, like, baby. Yeah, it's like one of those '80s baby, like the legend of the dinosaur. Or something. But yeah. It's, yes. Uh, yes. Yeah. 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 Yeah, yeah. Uh, For some reason, that like stuck with me as a kid. Uh, <laughs> it was like the most. I guess. Yeah. All that shit when you're a kid. I guess it does influence you <laughs> when you grow up. Cause here I am. <laughs> yeah. At like 41, talking about talking about you know essentially the plot the plot of baby um, yeah. <laughs> which is that these these guys find a, like a baby dinosaur in the in the african jungle so that's where does this the idea i think from your paper is that like this kind of thing came up lay brought a lot of it to the surface but it was sort of this i overarching idea um of this of africa as this exotic place with these exotic animals and maybe even uh, maybe even a still living dinosaur. That was kind of the idea, right? And then, and then a lot of it was sort of buffered by, uh, again, colonial, colonialists, uh, not just from Britain but from Europe, all over the place, coming and seeing strange things and sort of misinterpreting stuff. And and next thing you know, it's like oh, there's giant snakes and a lot of sort of exotic creatures come from come from their exp- exploration of these areas. Is that is that pretty. Did I do exactly, a good job? Yeah. Like, like, like yeah. at least a good grade on the quiz. Oh yeah, yeah. you get a passing grade for sure. <laughs> there you go. But yeah, that, that's kind of the idea, right? Yeah, it's this idea that Africa is this place, you know, the so-called dark continent. It's this not only a strange and exotic place, but you know, in many ways, by the 1800s, from the European point of view, this is the last unexplored place on Earth, you know, outside of say. Uh, you know, Antarctica, but, you know, it's really uh, until really the late 1800s, Europeans don't have a complete map of the continent. Uh, and so it's this exotic place. It's this place that, you know, has these giant blank spots in it, but also, you know, this is where the racial stuff comes up. There's a heavy racist component of Africa as a primitive place full of primitives. Uh, you know, we think right, about right. Africa as the birthplace of humanity uh, uh, with Lucy and all the you know, famous ancient hominids. That's not until the mid-1900s. I mean, there are people really, I think until the, this isn't technically my feel, so I'm not as, but I think it really until the 1950s, if not even later, there are people who believe that, you know, the human race emerged in Asia. Uh, the term Caucasian was because they thought the Caucasus Mountains, you know, with uh, George Armenia, that that's where the human race originated from, and therefore whites were the most advanced, you know, oldest, most civilized uh, of these. So there was an idea that Africans were kind of this land where evolution forgot, time forgot. It's this. Uh, uh, you know, backwards kind of evolutionary cutoff place. Uh, so there's part of that, but also it's just there's, you know, big creatures there naturally. So if there's elephants there, uh, you know, rhinoceros, giraffes, you don't see these anywhere else in the world. So it's this mix of, you know, an exotic place with giant animals, 
that seems like life has been, you know, forgotten there in terms of, you know, development that's happened elsewhere in the yeah, world. Yeah, like lost world, so it like seems, lost world. Exactly, idea. yep. Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, it's interesting, too, because in the lost world, uh, the famous novel, uh, it's kind of similar tropes about South America there also. Uh, uh, and then uh, what was the, uh, there's a whole spate of adventure novels, you know, in the mid-1800s, uh, King Solomon's Mines, for example, but there's a whole, uh, Tarzan even essentially is a uh, uh, reflection of this trope. Uh, you know, and mm. Tarzan also, that series you know, has the lost city of Opar in Africa, you know, very similar to Ophir, I'm sure, named after it. But uh, And there's all these uh, you know, legitimate scientific expeditions, uh, and not just the British, but the French and the Germans during the scramble for Africa are launching, uh, you know, basically arguing that, you know, could there be these lost, you know, outposts of white civilization in Africa? So this was seen as legitimate science, uh, uh, legitimate history by the established governments of the day, uh, which I think also shows that, you know, there are certain science boosters who like to think that science is always progressive and positive and, you know, you know everything, you know, science is always going to improve life. Science is always on the right side of history and, whether it's stuff like this or the eugenics movement or, you know, the creation of the atomic bomb, you know, it's, it's a reminder that this isn't always the case. Uh, the concentration camp was invented in Africa. Uh, the first German genocide of the 20th century is in Africa. So a lot of this is linked with these scientific ideas uh, that <laughs> are fairly dark from our hope. Well, hopefully people consider them fairly dark from our modern perspective. Yeah, for sure. It's funny. Uh, yeah, it's funny. It was, in a sense, I was kind of like reminded of what you're talking about because I'm a big wrestling fan. So this week, uh, Kamala, the wrestler Kamala, <laughs> who pretty much anyone from like who grew up watching wrestling as a kid knows, uh, the he was like an icon, Kamala. Mm-hmm. He was the Ugandan giant. He was like he was the ultimate stereotype of like everything that we're talking about he was uh yeah. he was you know he was a ugandan cannibal that they he was really from <laughs> he was really just a just a black guy from mississippi and they you know they 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 attached all these tropes to him and yeah. he became yeah. uganda the i mean he came kamala the ugandan giant and it was like everyone <laughs> sort of talked this week where he was this iconic kind of like beloved in a way because he was so unique and so just one of a kind. But it was like, you could never do that today. This, this is such a exactly. wrong character. <laughs> like, it only yeah. <laughs> it only could fly today. You know, he could only heat it up until he died. You know, he could make appearances and shit. But it was like, out of nostalgia, um, you couldn't, yeah. <laughs> like, bring in the guy as his son or something like that. It was It, it just <laughs> would never fly today. But that's kind of like, and that was... I think like in the eighties, so it goes to show you. I mean, wrestling is kind of its own little backward world, so that they're not oh, exactly yeah. the most oh, yeah. prog- prog- progressive realm. But that kind of yeah. embodies a little bit what we're talking about in a sense. Exactly. Absolutely. Yeah. And uh, I mean, even outside of uh, uh, that, just things like you know zoos into the twentieth century, you know, exhibiting Africans next to wild animals. I think a uh, is it the Bronx Zoo? I think just came to a. Uh, uh, it had some kind of legal uh, apology and maybe uh, a payment to the descendants of some of the Africans that they kept in 
cages in the Bronx Zoo. And wow, so, I didn't even know they. I didn't know that the, album. Yeah. Jesus. Oh yeah. Wow. <laughs> that's that's really messed up. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> um, what I thought was interesting, um, was that you talk in the paper about how uh, there there have this Michaela Mamembe thing kind of became a thing as cryptozoology was sort of starting out. Um, Lauren may correct me on that, but, you know, it, later on, at some <laughs> point, um, yeah, uh, yeah, it became a thing. And, um, you know, and there were expeditions to go look for it and stuff. What I thought was interesting is that you mentioned that the governments of these countries, they're not in any hurry to squash the Mokele Mamembe uh, story. It's sort of like, all right, this is good. Keep Keep coming here. It gives it kind of gives them a little bit of a, it's uh it's kind of, it's kind of like in a Mothmanian or a Roswellian sort yeah. of thing where it's like sure sure yes National Geographic please spend a ton of money to come here, and and do a two hour special on the search, for Michaela Mamembe yeah. that, that that's <laughs> good for our good for our sort of brand if you will it's very interesting like that exactly yeah yeah it's fun like and it's not uh no just these third world countries might think of. Uh, I remember doing work in uh, uh, the British National Archives, finding some of the papers from the uh, the uh, like official newsletters of the Scottish National Party back when it started in uh, the 1930s. And it's funny that the Scottish National Party, uh, which advocates for Scottish independence, was founded right around the time like the modern wave of Loch Ness monster sightings or. Uh, uh, starting to come about so like we have like the famous surgeon's photo is being reported on in the scottish national party newspaper and they're embracing nessie you know they're saying like this loch ness monster is emerging right as you know our campaign for scottish independence has it's proof that uh you know nessie is the symbol of scottish independence uh but even uh, oh, wow. you know, talking about uh lost cities too uh i know uh, the government of honduras uh they're they've heavily you know gone all in on this search for this uh, supposed lost city that really, I mean, if you can't really find references to it before the 1930s, but you know, they've heavily promoted the search for this uh, supposed lost city in Honduras because, again, it's bringing in mainly American tourists, you know, American money. So, I mean, so why wouldn't they? But it's a, a right. financial incentive to you know, go all in on this. Yeah, it's pretty, pretty remarkable, and uh, yeah, it's interesting. It's interesting. I don't really. It it there's a part of me like that child. Part of me still hopes that there is like uh yeah some kind of, <laughs> some kind of di- I don't know, Warren mentioned some kind of he put forward some kind of a suggestion when I talked to him like uh, at the beginning of the summer, but now I forget what it was. But it was like some kind of like a, a water an aquatic something i forget what it was now but like i want maybe like a maybe like an aquatic rhino or something where he thinks yeah, maybe that that might be it or something i think that's a uh uh like a likely explanation or just like the idea that uh uh they're asking you know these early europeans were asking about you know large animals or seeing footprints and because of the language barrier or whatever you know the natives are describing a rhinoceros or something, and it, you know, to the European ears, it comes across as like a brontosaurus or this game of you know, translation telephone. Uh, I've also I've heard another explanation that uh, you know, this was basically 
uh, and it shows how the translation, not so much through words, but through different worldviews that uh, to certain, you know, peoples, the Mokele and the Bembe may be, you know, an animal that exists in a spiritual sense, but not what we would consider a physical sense. But to the Europeans at the time, it was hard to make this distinction of something which, you know, did exist to them and was very real, but not existing in a material sense. Uh, I've heard also, and I don't have, I don't have the language skills to come down. So I've heard that, uh, at least in some ways, they're basically just describing something that explicitly did not exist, you know, basically are saying, you know, this is a hoax or this is just like a joke or something, but the Europeans yeah. weren't able to pick up on that either. Uh, so, but yeah, it's, uh, that would make I, I think sense it's a rhinoceros. Yeah, yeah. If they were kind of like, mean, <laughs> you know, part of my language, like I ever say that, but, but like if they were just fucking with them, like, oh yeah, there's dinosaurs in there, so be careful if you go in there, there's dinosaurs. You know, and then they're all kind of laughing and shit, and they're like, "Oh, the shit!" You know, they don't believe, they don't realize that they're being taken for a ride. That's entirely possible. Well, and that's uh, the case, and there's in Mexico in uh, is it the Ica stone, something like that. But basically, uh, I mean, it's very clearly that um, these were hoaxes. But this uh, American guy, I think, I think it was in the 1930s or so, but uh, he was under the belief that there were you no. Know, dinosaurs living in Mexico in relatively recent times. And so, you know, he was, you know, told the native, like, people there, if you find anything that looks like, you know, some Aztec, you know, sculpture of a dinosaur, then I'll pay you for it. And sure enough, they started finding, you know, like hundreds of these, you know, sculpt. I mean, that's, uh, you know, more and like, would you, he stumbled on like the one place in Mexico where dinosaurs had existed, you know, until the 1500s. But I mean, this is very clearly, you know, <laughs> they saw this guy was willing to pay for, you know, ceramic sculptures of dinosaurs, and so they were going to deliver. Well, yeah, very interesting. Yeah, very, very interesting. Now, I want to pivot to the mammoth stuff. <coughs> Excuse me. Because I could yeah, not, sure. you sent me a paper here on this. I, this is like. <laughs> I, I'm a long, obviously, I'm a long-time student of the world of uh, strange and unusual and cryptozoology and stuff like that, and I never even knew that this was a thing, that apparently when they settled America, there was, and you can kind of get the dates and, and sort of flesh this out for me, but, but the, the gist of it, the shocking thing that I learned from your research is that, uh, that apparently there was a belief that there were still there were there were possibly still living woolly mammoths roaming around uh America when they settled yeah. it or at some point <laughs> yeah, throughout the settling of America. So talk talk about that cuz that's like it's just so uh it's just so foreign to me. It just sounds so bizarre. Like <laughs> how did A, how did I not know that? And B, like, what an awesome story. Like, what an awesome thing <laughs> that they thought that they were woolly mammoths and they were looking for them like we look for Bigfoot. Absolutely. I think there's actually – I forget if it was in the version of the paper I sent, but, I mean, I think there's a lot to be said for, you know, the woolly mammoth in the 19th century was, in a lot of cases, the Bigfoot, you know, similar patterns of searching today. But uh, this – I mean, this really began in uh, – the early 1700s, and again, to show how it all, it's all connected, there's a plantation in uh, South Carolina where the slaves pulled these bones out from uh, the salt marsh. Uh, the plantation owners, you know, 
I think I think at first they thought they were biblical giants, which again, just to show that you know the obsessions never die down because you know, right, right, a yeah. lot of people still obsess. But it's the African slaves, you know, who had been taken from the Congo region who recognize these are uh, elephant bones, and so uh, you know, obviously woolly mammoth or mastodons, but. Uh, at the time, you know, that distinction wasn't really known. That I don't think uh, woolly mammoths had been identified as such. And also, this is kind of before theory of even extinction, the idea that animals could go extinct. That wasn't as firmly, definitely was not as ah. widespread as it was today. So it was the idea, they're, find, they're finding these giant elephant bones, you know, then obviously it means there are giant elephants somewhere on the continent, Uh and then Thomas Jefferson becomes a big proponent of this uh, because, A, on the one hand, as a slave owner, his slaves are pulling, uh, you know, these giant elephant bones out of his plantation. But also, uh, uh, you know, he's a naturalist. He's interested in uh, uh, science, but he's getting into this contest or not uh, a literal contest, but kind of this uh, intellectual debate with uh, people back in Europe who are arguing that, you know, Europeans or the European continent does have these giant animals or, you know, in some cases very recently did. The Americas didn't. So it went to this whole theory that there was some aspect of the Americas that, you know, caused species to stagnate. Therefore, the American settlers, the American, you know, any governments established in the New World would stagnate. Jefferson's pointing out Uh, these giant mammoths. Yeah. So, I, see the, I uh, see, like, the propaganda there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep, exactly. <laughs> and so, you know, people don't recognize this as much, but uh, 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 Lewis and Clark, their expedition, one of the things Jefferson tells them is to look for woolly mammoths. Uh, uh, one of the other things that he tells them is to look for these, you know, Welsh Indians or, you know, lost Viking tribes. So, again, it's all these different ideas are kind of melding together. Uh they obviously don't find much of either, but uh, um, yeah. as they as the exploration of you know, first the Midwest, then the West Coast is happening, uh, they're finding more and more you know, fossils of these giant extinct uh, you know, mammoths. Uh, the uh, you know, range kind of shrinks. I think really by the mid 1800s, uh, the belief that there could still be living mammoths. Uh, in the Americas kind of fades away. But there is, on the one hand, the belief that, you know, maybe mammoths had actually existed until fairly recently. Uh, you know, there's a lot of the Native American mounds throughout the Midwest, these giant artificial constructs. There's uh, mammoths, uh, bones buried within them. Uh, you know, there's Native American legends of these creatures that seem to be based on woolly mammoths. Uh, one of my favorite arguments that I found, I think from the 1870s, was this guy who argued that, you know, these giant Native American mounds required such a large workforce that maybe they uh, ate the mammoths to extinction, you know, to provide the calories for these mound builders, <laughs> uh, which, yeah, it's, it made me laugh. But, uh, but right at the time, of course, that, uh, you know, this belief that uh, mammoths still living in the continental U.S. fades away, the U.S. purchases Alaska. It's this big, uh, you know, giant space in the cold. So, you know, obviously it's much like with Africa. It's not very well explored by Europeans. But also, uh, you know, it's the idea that if mammoths had been alive in the Ice Age, 
Alaska is kind of like the last That's remnant of that ice age environment. Yeah, exactly. So there's this resumption of searching in uh, uh, Alaska in the last few decades of the 1800s. And I think it was especially around 1899, there's this story printed that's explicitly a work of fiction, but it's about this hunter who goes to Alaska and finds a mammoth and kills it. But even though it's this work of fiction, it starts off this firestorm that people think that, uh, you know, it's real. I mean, people are writing to the Smithsonian Institution asking you know, when the mammoth carcass is going to arrive from Alaska. Uh, Holy all, shit. So it's, uh, yeah, so there's all these, you know, uh, this this fictional story is setting off a uh, uh, real-life search for mammoths. Uh, but there's also this kind of feedback, too, because, you know, mammoths did exist. Uh, uh, the Alaskan natives, the Eskimo, the Inuit, they're selling mammoth uh, ivory to Europeans. And so there's a belief, and uh, this is a bit contested, so it's not 100% true, but I think there's at least some truth to this, that when Europeans are being, you know, in the mid-1800s buying uh, mammoth ivory from Inuit or Eskimo, you know, they're asking where this ivory came from. Uh, the Eskimos didn't know, but then the Europeans are drawing pictures of mammoths for them, you know, basically just to show, you know, this is the old animal that this ivory came from. Later Europeans who arrive are then trying to find living mammoths. They ask the Eskimo, do you know where, uh, you know, what animal this came from. The Eskimos are like, yeah, sure. They you know, draw a picture of the mammoth because they had been shown pictures by previous right. Europeans. But then the new Europeans are like, oh my God, look, they're drawing a mammoth. They've seen these things real. They must still be oh. out there. And so it's this kind of feedback loop of uh, <laughs> just like wow. they're being told their own stories, but you know, a missing section in the middle. <laughs> Wow, that's crazy. Well, it's funny. Yeah. I, I, I must have been from reading your paper um, because I looked – somehow I wound up looking into this a little more. And uh, there's uh, – it's on YouTube. It's a hoax. So if folks see it, it's a hoax, but you can Google it. <laughs> but it's, like, so exciting. So apparently there I, – I, I've come to believe, I guess you could say, that there are – that the theory still hasn't, like – I'd say it's like 99% dead. There's still some people, I think, who think that it's possible because there's a there's a video, and it was really popular. It was like viral. Um, that's like a really well-crafted hoax. That The, the story uh, behind the video is that uh, I think it was like at the end of World War II, um, the Russians were, were leaving – you know, they were leaving. They were going back to Russia. They were crossing through Siberia or something like that. And, uh, you know, one of the people in the party spotted a, a living woolly mammoth and filmed it. And it's like a it's, – it's, like <laughs> it's, it's a pretty well-done hoax. Like someone took a video of an elephant and then, like, scratched it all up and, like, superimposed <laughs> it into, into the right scene. It made it look all, all. It made it look pretty real, and it went viral for a while. But that it was deemed a hoax. But it was like even just watching it, I got kind of excited. Where I was like, like I knew it yeah, was a hoax, but I'm watching it, and I'm like, <laughs> what if there really are some out there still? So yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, it is interesting. Like uh, it is interesting that just the idea that no mammoths are still out there. Yeah, that seems to be one idea that does not really still exist. And again, I think 
I think the last time people actually seriously argued this, I think, was really the end of World War II as a result of, you know, coming back from the war where we were saying, yeah, we stopped by in Siberia and this, you know, Russian hunter told us a story, you know, like 30 years ago we saw these. But uh, so it really seemed World War II was kind of the last gasp. Uh, when I was doing research, I did find there's a, I think Nick Redfern talked about a, a more recent uh, mammoth ghost story where someone claimed they had seen the ghost of a woolly mammoth. But I think that's kind of the le- most recent woolly mammoth-ish sighting that's yeah. <laughs> if you want if you believe that mammoths leave ghosts but uh uh which i guess if you believe in ghosts why not i mean but uh yeah but it is interesting yeah, you know it's weird yeah i got it. i don't like like if if you're going to think that either you know dinosaurs are still alive from you know hundreds of millions of years ago or mammoths are still alive from a few thousand years ago it seems like it's more likely to, that mammoths are still around just but it, again so it's you would think that the mammoth belief is more prevalent, but yeah, like it's, it is interesting that it's the mammoths are just, the belief in them has gone extinct, but you no, know, the idea that dinosaurs uh, are yeah. still alive somewhere, it's still uh, uh, thriving. Yeah. Well, it's more enticing, I guess. I, I bet you, well, a, I bet you this will happen like long after we're dead, but like, I bet you when, not even if folks, this is how dark I am tonight. When, <laughs> When elephants, when elephants go extinct, um, oh. <laughs> I know, I know. That's in in like two or three or four generations after that, then maybe it'll be more alluring. But I, I think because we have elephants, we're like, who who needs woolly mammoths? We have we have elephants, so we they're yeah. still around. Uh-huh. We we don't need to romanticize them and search for the ones that kind of like the thylacine. You know, or I was like, just thinking that, yeah. <laughs> like now that the thylacine's gone, everyone's like, "No, come on, maybe this is maybe it's what it's like. The, it's like the stages of grief. It's like it's, yeah. there's, there's the bargaining stage down there where they're like, what if, what about what, what if we, uh, you know, what if we, what if there's got to be more left? Come on, come on, there's got to be more. Yeah. We've got to put all camera traps and shit. It's like, no, yeah. dude, you really killed them all. Have you yep. ever looked at uh, Sarah Streetfield, who's a hardcore uh, BOA listener down in Australia? She uh, she couldn't make it to listen live tonight, but she asked me to ask you. Have you looked at any? I, I suppose it it would be worked under the idea of what you've looked at, where it's like, have you ever looked at sort of how these creatures may have emerged in Australia, specifically like the bunyip? I haven't looked deeply enough into it, but I'm I bet you. Not- you could overlay the story somewhat where it's like that it that it kind of grew out of this you know the, the 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 transitional period between colonialists and na- and native people but that's just a guess on my Absolute, part Absolutely yeah I mean I I I'm not as familiar with Australian uh uh tales but I would definitely yeah. think it would come out of the same because again you have a lot of the real same tropes that the interior of Australia is not really mapped fully by Europeans until, I mean, really, I think the 20th century. So it's the same idea of, you know, this very distant, very blank spot on the map. Uh, you know, the indigenous Australian Aboriginals are treated fairly bad as well. Uh, same ideas, you know, these primitive Stone Age peoples. Uh, not so much with cryptozoology, but I know with like the idea of lost cities, you know, there's a lot of, uh, people, you know, 
trying to find like, oh, this is proof that the ancient Romans came to Australia. So there's a lot of like oh, research really? for like ancient, you know, Celts or ancient Romans, all that kind of lost white explorers of Australia. That's really prominent uh, uh, in a lot of uh, those kind of fringe pseudo history things. And I think for the same reason, they're so prominent in uh, Africa as well. Interesting. Yeah, yeah, that would make sense. That would make a lot of sense. It's, uh, yeah, it's, uh, I had something I was going to say, but I lost my train of thought. But yeah, Australia, <laughs> it would make a lot of sense. Yeah, it's sort of like another undiscovered world. So, uh, mm-hmm. but yeah, they have a lot of exotic animals and shit. I mean, I don't, I'm showing my ignorance here, but like, I don't know if kangaroos are just in Australia, but in, in my, in the cartoon <laughs> world I live in, they are. Yeah. So I would imagine. If you came from, like, England and you went to Australia and you saw a kangaroo, you'd be like, what the fuck else is here? This is Exactly, crazy. yeah. <laughs> well, it shows, too, that, you know, like 300 years ago, from the European point of view, cryptozoology and regular zoology, I mean, there's not really any differentiation there. You know, if you're coming to, like you said, Australia and you're hearing about this so hopping thing that carries young people in its natural pouch, I mean – that's not really any stranger than hearing, you know, like, oh, a giant lizard living in the middle of Africa. It's just, mm. it's really the end of, like, once kind of, you know, so to speak, the maps on, or the blank spots on the map get uh, filled in, that really, I think, zoology and cryptozoology start to diverge. But, I mean, yeah, like 300, 400 years ago, it's, it's cryptozoology is zoology, at least from a European perspective, I think. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'd love to, if anyone out there knows, this is a challenge to the, to the uh, listeners. <laughs> There's got to be somebody <laughs> who isn't, someone who, who isn't totally insane. So I, I'll reserve the right to veto <laughs> any, anyone people suggest. But if there's anyone out there who's still, who's pushing the still living woolly mammoth theory, I would love to have them on the show. Yeah, I would to, love, uh, yeah, I, absolutely. Uh, yeah, there's got to be somebody. There's got to be somebody who's got. If they haven't caught up that niche, I should. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I, should, I should be pushing that. I could go all over the circuit with that. But yeah, it's crazy. Well, I never knew till I read your stuff that people. I never knew any of this that like they thought that the woolly mammoth was still alive, and that like I said that it was like a Bigfoot. Of of the eighteen hundreds was that about when when this was going on? Was yeah, yeah. I always get the century mark. Yeah, eighteen. Yeah, pretty much very late eighteen hundreds. Yeah. Very weird. It's wild, man. It is. <laughs> it's wild. Now we're gonna. I guess this is good. We're at the we're at the top of the hour, so we'll give the warning now. The warning bell, the folks. Yeah. We're gonna get into flat Earth now, so don't. Oh, uh, yeah, don't shut off your yeah, thing. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Edward, Edward and I are huge, huge Flat Earth fans, and as we joked at the beginning of the show, we're like two of the only people who uh, – there's a lady who's writing a book. I got to – once she gets that uh, out. Kelly uh, Whale or Wild. Yeah, I, think, I believe uh, so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've been meaning to get in touch with her, but uh, but there's very few. She might be the only other person, person looking, yeah, looking uh, at Flat Earth world. So I guess what, what kind of like what, – what, you know, what did – where where did your interest in – this crazy conspiracy theory come from? Well, you know, it's, it's one of those things where you've know, always kind of heard about it. And I think it's, you know, it was interesting kind of at a younger age to think of it as a thought experiment of, you know, what would a flat earth be like? Just, you know, thinking about 
you know, like what's beyond the edge. What's I, th- I think it was just an interesting thought experiment for me for a while as a kid. Uh, you know, I read a lot of uh, uh, Larry Niven, Arthur C. Clarke. So they had a lot of stories about, you know, like what if you built a ring around the star? What if you built a giant disc around the star? So I think I kind of looked at it from that science fiction perspective. But more recently, and again, uh, it's coming out of my dissertation. Uh, I was talking about Southern Africa and uh, the Dutch who settled there. Uh, uh, the Dutch who went to South Africa who settled there, very uh, fundamentalist Calvinist Protestant. So these are you know, very dedicated, uh, uh, you know, this is right after the Protestant Reformation. So they're very committed to this uh, very strict interpretation of the Bible. Uh, and so, Actually, this ties in with Great Zimbabwe a bit. You know, they see themselves as the new Israelites. They have this story, this you know, city built by the old Israelites. They think it confirms them when they're getting chased out of you know their initial settlements by the British. They see this as you know, a sign of the Exodus. So they're very committed to putting themselves into this uh, Old Testament interpretation. But part of this also was a rejection of the Enlightenment values. Uh, of science, of rationality, and a part of this was rejecting not just, uh, you know, heliocentrism from Copernicus, but going back to the Flat Earthers. Uh, a lot of the major Dutch political figures right around the time when, uh, you know, Cecil Rhodes is arriving in South Africa and the British are fighting the Dutch to take over uh, the colonies, the Dutch political leaders are Flat Earthers, uh, and they're explicitly, you know, uh, rejecting the rounder theory uh, as uh, from their point of view as being this British imposition as part of, you know, the British plot to take over uh, what the Dutch see as their land. So that was really in more recent terms, the kind of thing that made me look into this. I know that must be also kind of unique in that, you know, even as all this stuff is going on in more recent years with the resurgence of the flat earth uh, uh, popularity that was going on around, uh, especially five or so years ago, it's really looking through these historical documents that made me interested in uh, looking at flat earthers from that perspective. Yeah, well, we, you and I have talked about my experience at the Flat Earth Conference uh, before. We talked I'm, about I'm really jealous. Yeah, it's, uh, <laughs> I wish, yeah. Well, you, the trip. Between the pandemic and what seems to be the collapse of the Flat Earth movement right now, it's... Uh, I it, know. Doesn't look good that there'll be another one, but you know, in a couple of years maybe they'll do another one. We'll have to, uh, you'll you'll have to fucking yeah. <laughs> come to this one because it was a trip. But the it was funny because when I met them, they told you it's like none of them know any of this stuff. They don't have mm-hmm. any appreciation uh, for the history of the flat Earth. So it was really mind blowing to me because I know a ton about the history of the flat Earth um, theory and everything. That I was just like, nobody knows who. No one knows who Robotham is. No one knows about yeah. Parallax. You know, no one knows about Samuel Shenton in the 60s. It's like, oh, my God, they don't know, you know, they don't know where, like, the derogatory term flat earther came from. This is crazy. They, they just, like, <laughs> they're just neophytes in this thing. And they don't care. They don't want to know any of it. It's really wild. Yeah, yeah that's the when, really now, interesting, yeah. <laughs> go ahead. Yeah, yeah. It's really no, just, very, very strange. I read a couple of like the more recent what was it like a uh, Zen Garcia and uh, uh, was one of the but yeah it's like one of the much more recent flat Earth uh, like 
Bibles, for lack of a better word. Yes, yeah, just I mean, even in though these foundational texts of the modern movement, such as they are, is it's nothing, uh, uh, not a huge amount of knowledge of what beforehand. Yeah, yeah. I always recommend Christine Garwood's book. That's the I'd call that like the definitive history of the flat Earth. It's outstanding. But Christine it, Garwood, yeah. Stuff- and then uh, uh, God, uh, yeah. uh, Jeffrey Russell wrote uh, "Inventing the Flat Earth," which is it's not as it's not technically about the flat Earth movement, but about why people came to believe that you know medieval Europeans believed that the Earth was flat. So. Uh, it's definitely complementary to her, but yeah, I mean, really, uh, outside of those two, there's just not a whole lot of historical looks at it either. Well, what 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 I found interesting is your stuff uncovered this. That's not this isn't in the Garwood book, which was amazing to me. Paul Kruger, we're talking about this now. This we were talking about these Dutch settlers who kind of took over South Africa. Now, Paul Kruger was like the major guy, right? He was the president of South yeah, Africa yeah. for a while. He was he was a staunch flat earther to the point that, like, they had a political cartoon in England about him being a flat earther. <laughs> what year was this? Yeah. This is a late 1800s. Uh, I think uh, that cartoon, I believe it was 1898, I believe, but – uh, he's in charge of uh, uh, the country. Is called, it's technically called the South African Republic, but it's usually called the Transvaal Republic. But this Dutch uh, uh, settler state in what's now South Africa. Yeah, he was president from, uh, I think, the 1880s until uh, 1902, I think, when the British finally took over. So this is well into start of, well, now, but brief you know, going into the start of the 20th century uh in South Africa uh I mean he he founded his own or he was a major figure in a, the religious movement called uh uh the Dopper Church which meant you know to extinguish the light of the enlightenment so he's at the same time the head of this you know government he's a legitimate head of state he's also the head of this anti-enlightenment uh pro flat earth Christian church in South Africa, which the descendants at uh, the Dutch Reformed Church still active there today. Well. Yeah, it's interesting. That I, I would like to know, I don't know if you know this, because I know you know uh, the the lineage, I guess you could say, of the flat earth theory. Part of the reason why I asked you like what year it was, it's like I'd wonder like, if he picked this up from Robotham, First, and I, because he seemed like the only, the first person to be pushing this stuff. I wonder if it somehow filtered down to Kruger, and then he went down to South Africa, or if it filtered down somehow to South Africa. I mean, we know it. We know the idea uh, was, uh, what would you say, exported from England to America. So we know there was uh, people who early proselytizers of the flat Earth theory, kind of around that same time. So I just kind of wonder. I don't know if you know that, but like. Where, where maybe if there's any way to trace the idea, if you will. I'm I'm trying to look into. That's one of the problems with you know the pandemic shutting down everything. I was supposed to be in uh, South Africa this past summer. I was going to try and do some research on it then, which hopefully I'll get to next year. But yeah, from what I can tell, so I haven't I haven't been able to figure it out. It may be a case of just you know parallel thinking in that uh, you know we're both um, yeah. of, you know most of them they're all very much, you know, radical Protestants, you know, from our point. So I think it may be a case where there's this independent uh, development. But at the same time, 
there is a uh, flat earther, a very act guy in the, the Zetetic Society, uh, Thomas Winship, who was active in South Africa at this exact same time. Uh, I think his nickname was Rectangle. Uh, he eventually comes back to London, I think, but he's, act he's a member of the society. Uh, he was living in South Africa. I haven't been able, he wrote a book, uh, I forget the title, I'll have to look it up, but uh, uh, he wrote a title, or he wrote this book, which I looked through, he doesn't mention Kruger in it, uh, I think it was written about the same time, but there is kind of indirectly this one link, uh, at the time, I mentioned this in my article, there's uh, this guy, Joshua Slocum, who was an American, who was uh, the first guy to sail around the world on his own in a yacht, but uh, Slocum in his memoirs, he talks about stopping in South Africa, uh, meeting Kruger and, you know, Kruger basically telling him that, uh, uh, you know, it's impossible for him to sail around the world uh, because, you know, the world's flat. And so this is a big thing at the time. But uh, Winship, the English uh, flat earther who was in South Africa, he also uh, met Slocum. He writes about it in his own book. His takeaway is that Slocum always says that he just keeps sailing uh straight, you know, he doesn't mention any, you know, sailing curved or sailing, you know, quote, downhill or anything. So while Kruger is saying this guy Slocum, you know, is a fraud because he's not actually sailing around the world, uh, Winship is saying Slocum is proof that the earth is flat. So it is, that is the one connection so far I've found is that this one, uh, you know, American sailor had these two different interactions with these two prominent South African flat earthers, uh, uh, in 1898. I wonder how much, like, I guess if, yeah, you would know if he went down, so like, like how much of Kruger's stuff is still around, if you could ever find any sort of, like, correspondence, with, is that, if that's even out there at all, like his letters or some I'm shit sure, like that. I'm sure there's stuff, I, I'm, the problem is I think a lot of it's probably written in uh, Dutch, so that, that may be a problem, oh, yeah. but, uh, but I, I gotta look in this, it's, I'll look. I'm sure worse comes to worse. I can have someone translate it for. Him. But uh, but yeah, so I'm I'm very yeah, interested yeah. to see what is around there. But. All you need to know in Dutch is flat Earth, and then you just find exactly. <laughs> once you find that, then you just hand it over yeah. to someone who can translate. You'd be like, all right, I found I found Vudenhagen in all these yeah. <laughs> papers. So I need to know well, the what they say. The other thing is too that I wonder if the opposite going through some of the you know, old Zetetic records or some of their letters yeah. they may talk about. So far from what I've done, I haven't been able to look through a ton of stuff. I have not found any of them talking about it, but, I mean, there's such huge gaps. There must be something. Wait, I know, uh, was it Shenton's Flat Earth Society? All of his uh, documents are at, uh, I think, the University of Liverpool Library now. So I'm hoping maybe next year, if all things go well, I may be able to try and get and look through those. So uh, the pro you know, I haven't found any smoking gun yet, but I'm sure somewhere in some archive there's some letter waiting to be discovered. Yeah. We gotta spread this stuff around. Let's put it on the internet. You're listening to Banal of America Audio. Great heavens. What kind of radio show is this? Well, what I found interesting, and uh, again, it's like these folks who are in it today, who are interested in this today, they don't realize that they're, like, part of this generational thing. You know, that's the... that's the. Mm -hmm. Maybe they don't want to know, you know what I mean? Or maybe they'll just, like... Yeah. <laughs> they don't want to know that 
this comes along every generation and then kind of dies out and then it comes along again every like 20 or 30 years in a big way. You know what I mean? Yeah, I remember when you were interviewing Mark Sargent, you, you were bringing this up. You didn't seem all that interested in something. <laughs> yeah, it's just uh, uh, and maybe, yeah, maybe they like thinking they're the first people to come up with, uh, hey, the earth looks flat, doesn't seem round. <laughs> well, yeah, maybe the, I think maybe part of it too is like if they have to like look in the proverbial mirror of the flat earth and be like, wait a minute now, this has been around for like 150 years. It's like older than, it's older than any of like the conspiracy theories people talk about now, except for yeah some of the really like rudimentary ones where there's like the Illuminati controls the world kind of stuff. But it's yeah. like, it's older than like JFK and 9-11 by a long, by a long, long oh, shot. Yeah. So it's, it's, but so maybe part of it is sort of like this subliminal thing where it's like, because that was kind of the impression they gave me. Like, no, 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 we're the new generation. We're the new generation <laughs> of flat earth. We don't need to worry about what happened before. And it's like, is that because you guys fu- <laughs> have spent the last 150 years trying to do this and it, it hasn't worked out yet? Like, yeah. <laughs> at, what point, at what point do you give up on this? Well, it's funny, too, now, that okay. there was uh, – let's see, I'm going to try and – I think it was – uh, a woman named Sharon Hill. Let me just wrote. Yeah, she wrote a book called uh, "Scientifical Americans," but it's this idea of she calls scientifical thinking. It's not like they're not using science, but they're using what seems like science to them to prove their point. And actually, I think she was talking about this a lot with uh, cryptozoology and UFO researchers. But I think with flat earthers too, it's you know it's the idea that. Uh, a lot of these groups thinking that you know we're the first, we're we're using science to prove that this is real, but most of them have no scientific training. And I mean, I say I have no scientific. I could not do any of this stuff either. Right. But yeah. it's just if something sounds scientific or it seems like science doing it, then you know that's okay. Now it just has to sound scientific, and that's just as good as actual science. Yeah, well, I was explaining that to some people recently. I did a, a little online presentation on history of the flat Earth and sort of was explaining that to people, like how I think people nowadays get hooked into it because they get bombarded with all of these questions, which traces back to Robotham and, and Parallax and the old idea of like a hundred proofs that the Earth is flat. It's like they still use yep. the same <laughs> textbook from then. But even on the YouTube videos where they're like 200, yeah. now they've somehow increased it to 200. Where it's like 200 <laughs> reasons why the earth is flat. And, you know, you get up to like some of them, you know, you get to like number 30 or whatever. And it's like when Venus is here and, and Mars is there, how come this looks that way in the sky? And it's like some crazy fucking <laughs> math that like nobody, unless you're an armchair astro- astronomer or a genuine astronomer or whatever, you know, unless you have some modic- more than a modicum of tra- training in this stuff. You have no idea, like, no one has any idea why yeah. <laughs> things look the way they do and shit from here. So I can see why some people are like, hmm, that doesn't make any sense. When if you were an astronomer, you'd be like, well, it's because of the atmosphere and this, that, the other thing, and the angle and the sun, all that. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, it's just, you know, on the one hand, there's, you know, a common sense explanation of why something seems like the case, and then there's the long, complicated technical uh thing that, you know, you need a PhD to understand. It's obvious, you know, (laughs) if you have to spend more than, you know, like 10 seconds refuting something that seems, you know, commonplace, uh, like, you know, just say, why are people in China not falling off the earth? 
you know, if it's if they're upside down, but uh, you know, then having to go into a long talk about gravitation and you know, uh, Newton and Einstein, all that's just yeah, it's it uh, yeah, <laughs> I can see why people think can get bamboozled by the idea. So yeah, it's uh, but what's interesting too is that I and I think you can speak to this is that there's a a really People don't – when they think about the flat earthers, I think a good portion of them are – this is like religious doctrine. There's a deep mm-hmm. – this isn't like a matter of belief. This is a matter of faith for them. Um, and I think once you kind of see that, and it's been that way like since the beginning, since uh, – uh, his name escapes me, but Rebotham's understudy there, the guy who took took the reins and uh, had the bet with the guy who co, co-invented – um, yeah, it was uh, theory of evolution. Uh, I know who you're. Say, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Hamble or yeah, yeah, something like that. Yeah, Hampton or Hampstead or something like that. Um, yeah, yeah. But since him, uh, there's always the there's a thread of like of like I call them like OG creationists. They're and it kind of <laughs> ties into like what you were saying about about uh, about Rhodes, where it's like they're. Yep. They're not just – they're so into the – they're so committed to the creationist thing that they even contend that the earth is flat. And this is like people from from then, from back in like the 1880s all the way up to some of the people I was hanging out with in Dallas. You know, perfectly lovely mm-hmm. people but are super religious and OG creationists who say that the earth is flat. So there's a deep religious underpinning to this. That's one of the most surprising. When I started looking deeper into the flat Earth movement, that's what really surprised me is how much of it really is uh, religious. And it is funny too because you know if you just like take cursory, you know, listen to some of the stuff. I mean, uh, that some of the more prominent ones say it doesn't really come out. But if you start listening more and more, it just becomes clear that you know this very you know fundamentalist Protestant mainly worldview is you know they're going back to Oh, the Bible proves the earth is flat, therefore it is. And this, how much, throughout history, too, it's just, this is almost in every case. Uh, there was a couple uh, uh, years ago, I don't know if you heard about this, in uh, a university in Tunisia that was going to, or uh, someone there was trying to have a, a PH, a doctoral dissertation proving the earth was flat, and this was kind of a big uh, hubbub, and you know, it was, people clutching pearls, you know, this university was going to pass this dissertation, all this, well, I mean, which they didn't, uh, but um, it caused a brief uproar. But what was really interesting about me is this, I mean, that dissertation, if uh, uh, even though it was rejected, but this is like one of the only things I've seen where it was at least trying to be a purely scientific explanation of a flat earth with absolutely no religious arguments at all. And I mean, I think that's, the only one I've really seen. I mean, it was really unique for that case. I thought I sent you one that was another one from Israel. I didn't know. uh, Let me see if I can find that. Yeah, Yeah, it was recently, like last year. I never heard whatever became of it, but um, yeah, some young lady who, I guess she's a flat earther uh, in Israel, and she tried to pass her dissertation on that. So let me see if I can find that while I talk to you about it. Have you have you do you know any real uh any any contemporary flat earthers? Like have you ever met a flat earther? 
Uh, not really. Real, I, well, maybe I have. But, yeah, unfortunately, I have not really had the chance to talk about any of this in person, which is why I really would have, uh, you know, loved to have gone to the conference this year and seen some in person. But, yes, yeah, so I've never actually – Know, had the kind of discussion or debate with them. I've tried to approach, actually, I've tried to approach some of them online, just been like, you know, uh, here's what I'm interested in. Would you be willing to talk? And never gotten any kind of response. But uh, uh, I'm a bit hesitant about you know, doing like a social media approach since uh, you know, that may be opening a can of worms. But uh, if there are any flat earthers listening to this and they want to get in touch with me, please do. But yeah. Yeah. originally was kind of what what I alluded to earlier. It's like you've looked at a lot of this flat earth in areas that I hadn't even explored. Um, <laughs> and what, what we first, that's what got us talking originally at Lauren's event, because you had mentioned yeah, yeah. Boko, Boko Haram being flat earthers. And I was oh, like, yeah, what? Yeah. I've never heard of that. So talk about, talk about the Boko Haram flat earth connection. Oh, yeah. Actually, I was just... Uh reading about some of this uh, today, too, so it's good you ask. It's got a couple more uh, documents in. But for those who aren't you know, aware, Boko Haram is a uh, in northern Nigeria. It's a Muslim, uh, I guess, Sunni Muslim fundamentalist group, I guess, uh, very similar to uh, ISIS. I mean, they actually became affiliated with ISIS for a while. But it began as a uh, uh, a movement led by a guy named Muhammad Yusuf. I think 2002 they originated, and it was originally a kind of like a traditionalist Muslim reform movement saying, oh, let's go back to the basics from the Quran as they saw it, uh, and not be you know, associated with the modern world, which in their view, or at least uh, uh, Muhammad Yusuf's argument was that you know, modern education was actually Western imperialism imported by the British uh, in contrast with uh, the long-standing, uh, you know, pre-colonial Muslim education system in West Africa, uh, so he's starting to have some of these debates. As far as I could tell, the first argument, uh, uh, or where he may argued with a uh, uh, or supported a flat Earth argument, was he was coming from uh, in 2004. He was having a debate with a pro-Western uh, Muslim cleric, and actually, I can bring up. I have this right here. Let's see. So he was saying that uh, uh, his argument was that uh, uh, according to the Quran, okay, he says, the sun runs to its fixed destination. This is the decree of the Almighty, the All-Knowing. So this is his basis for saying, you know, the Quran has this line, therefore the sun doesn't move, the earth is flat. Uh, I think uh, the reference to the four corners of the earth you hear them talk about in the Bible is also from uh, uh, in the Quran also. But uh, in 2009, uh, the Muslim state or uh, the Nigerian government rather tried to crack down on Boko Haram, and so led to this you know ongoing uh, you know uprising they lead against the Nigerian government. Uh, uh, Muhammad Yusuf he was actually arrested and executed pretty quickly, but uh, his uh, successor. Uh, Abu Bakar Shakar, I think is his name. Uh, he's also expl uh, mentioned flat earth. So actually, one of the uh, unfortunate things, you know, they've talked to, or there's been a lot in the news about, uh, you 
you know, the schoolgirls at Boko Haram have kidnapped or killed. But, yeah, yeah. Uh, one of the one of the uh, groups, I guess, that they specifically target are geography teachers because of their uh, uh, flat Earth belief. So this is, I think, not in a Western context, but this is a case where flat Eartherism has had very deadly uh, repercussions, where Boko Haram has specifically targeted geography teachers in Nigeria and really across West Africa because of this. Uh, uh, that being said, you know, this is, I mentioned that they became affiliated with ISIS. I don't know if I, I've not found anything about like ISIS or the Taliban or Al Qaeda or any other, uh, uh, you know, these similar Muslim radical groups being flat earth. So this may be something that comes specifically from that strain and, uh, uh, yeah. Boko Haram's thought. Uh, for a brief time in the 1980s in Saudi Arabia, there was a Muslim cleric who was a flat earther, but he did uh, move away from that view, although it seems as though he maintained a uh, geocentric view, which also is interesting. He rejects the flat earth, but you know, clings to geocentrism. And he eventually became, uh, in the 90s, the chief Muslim cleric in Saudi Arabia. So there's that connection too. But uh, in terms of modern Muslim movements that are embracing uh, uh, flat eartherism, as far as I can tell, Boko Haram seems to be it. Well, yeah. It's, you, I never, yeah, that's what God was talking originally because it's so out of left field because everybody just hears about, oh, the wacky, the wacky flat earthers in the English-speaking countries, but a lot of people yep. opened my, well, you know, opened my eyes when I was in Dallas was, uh, then later there was like an AP article about it, which kind of like fleshed out what I had learned. And apparently there's like a massive audience of, uh, of flat earth people in Brazil. So. Oh yeah. Like, yeah. So, uh, I, I know for there. a time, at least it was the, uh, uh, the minister of education and the minister of foreign relations, uh, right under uh, the current president, when he got into power, Bolsonaro, uh, uh, they were flat earthers because uh, his like main political guru, which is I think his name is uh, Olavo de Carvalho, which probably I'm not pronouncing that anywhere close to right, but uh, he's like a YouTube astrologer who became President Bolsonaro's big political advisor, uh, and he's a flat earther, so he was giving all these suggestions to be uh, uh, flat earthers to put in cabinet positions in the Brazilian government, uh, which is, you know, uh, a, a crazy thing to think about. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, it's pretty wild. It's, uh, yeah, I've been trying to draw a line between the flat earthers and this Q thing, but it hasn't really quite happened yet. That, but there are definitely Q people who, who, to subscribe to the flat earth theory. Um, I don't know. I tried to, when I talked, yeah, when I talked to the flat earthers, they didn't, they didn't, they weren't Q people. They didn't really know what the hell it was. So hopefully (laughs) I didn't turn anyone on to it, but yeah, uh, they (laughs) didn't really, uh, yeah. That's just an interesting thing. I mean, it's like, I, I, I don't know when I first heard about QAnon. I think maybe, I think, was it uh, Roseanne when she had her meltdown? I think she started talking about it then. But uh, I guess I've started following QAnon. Well, not, I've not started following QAnon. I've started becoming interested in the QAnon right, right. movement. But yeah. it's just the way that that's evolved. I mean, it's the fact that there are going to be QAnon members in Congress 
after it's November. It's really I mean, almost. It's yeah. It's, <laughs> but I mean, even like we're talking about Australia, like uh, the new prime minister of Australia, by all accounts, is a QAnon supporter, and uh, like one of his close friends and advisors is absolutely a QAnon person. There's been wow, kind of QAnon statements dropped into you know, the prime minister. I think like the former like. Uh, Maybe not the Conservative Party in Canada, but like a relatively recently a major political party leader in Canada also uh, was a QAnon supporter. So it's just like it's not even just in the U.S., which is just so strange because the QAnon like mythology is so centered around Trump and U.S. politics, and it's uh, yeah, it's it's something about it's really (laughs) creepy. Yeah, it's really. Well, I went down a rabbit hole this week, actually, because uh, all that stuff came out about the lady who's almost certainly going to be elected to Congress, who's a yeah. QAnon. <laughs> she's, she's trying to, like, distance herself from it now, but it's like, lady, you're, yeah, okay. <laughs> you know, come on. We all know you're a QAnon lady. So, uh, mm-hmm. but somebody was like, hey, you know, this is, this is like, I don't forget how they mentioned it, but they cited the cult in Japan, and they were like, I guess apparently the cult in Japan, I don't know the name of it. People will know. Was it it a, had a, um, a colorful. What's that? Was it a Am um, Rico? Gotta be. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. 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 And they had a colorful leader and everything. And the, you know, the people, the person who made the tweet, I wish I could cite them, but it was like late at night. And I was just, I went, they, they linked to an old thread that they had written. And I was like, what the hell is – because they were like, yeah, okay, we're laughing at these QAnon people. They laughed at the at that cult in Japan because uh, apparently they mm-hmm. ran like a whole shitload of people for Japanese Congress. And when they were like <laughs> laughed out of the building um, and the polls, I guess, they then they got all pissed off and they were like, all right, well, <laughs> if we can't get in and influence government, we're going to start blowing shit or you know, gassing people in the subways and shit. Yep. That was yeah. sort of the idea of what <laughs> happened. So that's what scares me about these QAnon people. It's like they, yeah. they, they they're not they're they're not a happy go lucky cult, folks. They're they no. seem driven to uh violence. So I mean and they've already, like this QAnon like it's only been around for what, like two years. They've already killed people. Like uh there's Staten Island, the mobster who was killed by a QAnon. Oh, yeah, yeah, I forgot about that. Who, uh, yeah. The QAnon guy who killed his twin brother because he because he thought he was a lizard person. But, I mean, there's more of these. But, yeah, it's, I mean, it's already uh, <laughs> has a body count. It's already turned is, dangerous, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's very weird. Um, now, I want to ask you about this because uh, similar to the mammoth story, um, in your article, Squ- Squaring the Spheroid, and we'll have all these linked uh, uh, yeah, at the Banal of America site, you mentioned this crazy thing that I'd never heard of, much like the mammoth thing, uh, the Great <laughs> Moon Hoax of 1835. So at first I was like, oh, oh, yeah. I, uh, you know, I'm skimming this, and I see Great Moon Hoax, and I'm thinking, oh, the Moon Hoax theory. This is a whole different thing that, ha- that happened in 1835 that uh, that I was like, what? I never even heard of this. So tell me about the Great <laughs> The Great Moon Hoax of 1835, because it's unbelievable. Oh, yeah, it's just, yeah, it's, it's a great story. Uh, yeah, it was just uh, in these, you know, U.S. newspapers in 1835, all of a sudden uh, there's these reports that uh, this uh, famous uh, astronomer, I think it was a William Herschel, I think, in South Africa. You know, he was British, but he uh, was going to South Africa to work at the Cape Town Observatory, 
that, you know, he had developed this new telescope and aimed it at the moon. And it turns out that uh, there's all these, you know, weird bat-like people living on the moon. And just, you know, day after day, these uh, uh, reports from South Africa were coming about this astronomer, uh, uh, you know, making these discoveries you know, on the moon with this telescope of alien life. Uh, and then, of course, you know, it petered out. But, uh, and of course, it's it's all fake. But uh, for weeks, it's this... Uh, newspaper making up this story out of whole cloth about uh you know aliens being discovered on the moon basically i think it's one of the first like extraterrestrial life hoaxes uh at least in uh uh the american print media also one of the first big newspaper hoaxes also uh you know made explicitly just to drive up numbers but the interesting thing is i mean it's it had a kernel of truth uh this was a real astronomer. He really was going to the Cape Town Observatory. He really was observing the moon. So I think it shows also, you know, like the best hoaxes have this kind of, you know, baseline of fact to them that are building off. Uh, I think he actually got, he was kind of amused when he later heard about it, then kind of got uh, pissed off as it continued. Uh, I think... Uh, uh, oh, so he had no Allen, idea. They, they oh, yeah, no, media. not until like, yeah. Until well oh, after wow. It's happening. even weirder. Yeah. Wow, all right. <laughs> but again, also, you know, it's it's one of those things where people at the time, maybe, you know, even if, you know, I mean, at the time, you know, aliens living on the moon, sure, it seemed plausible. But, you know, news from South Africa doesn't come in that fast uh, across the Atlantic in the 1830s. Yeah. So you'd think that. You were, what were you going to say? Criti- uh, I was going to say uh, Edgar Allan Poe got pissed off because uh, he thought they were basically plagiarizing uh a story he had written uh, recently, which I think is called uh, uh, The Adventures of Hans Fall or something. But it was basically uh, about a guy, you know, going on a hot air balloon to reach the moon and, you know, writing dispatches about the moon. So he thought actually uh, this whole hoax was uh, them ripping off this story he had written. And then he wrote this other uh, story as a result that was like a hoax about a uh, guy using a balloon to cross the Atlantic Ocean, which also was taken as fact. So, uh, again, it's, you know, where fiction and reality kind of keep crossing the wires. Yeah, yeah. It's, yeah, that's just uh, what a weird story. See, I thought the guy, <laughs> I thought the guy had been, like, sending these dispatches like fakes, you know, like like Percival Lovell kind of thing. Uh, not that oh. I don't know if Lovell faked it or was just confused or what, but it was. I thought it was something like that where the guy was like, "Oh, I have, you know, there was a fucking bug on his telescope," and he was like, yeah. this is not, you know, like that Kent Brockman thing." <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, this is a, this is a, they got to sell newspapers. I think you know it's also uh, we talk a lot about fake news now, but I think people don't realize how in the 1800s just how much of like just complete hoaxes were in the news. And I think also that uh, uh, I've seen the argument made that, you know, when people go back through old newspaper records and they'll see things about, you know, like giant pterodactyl found in the old West or, you know, like all the stories about, you know, throughout the like 1870s, there's all these stories about, you know, meteorites crashing with, uh, you know, Egyptian hieroglyphics. And I think this is something where people at the time, would have recognized, all right, they're just making up sensational stories because they got to sell copies. I think maybe there was right, an understanding right. that news and fiction were not as separate then, but now when, you know, 
researchers are looking back and they're saying, oh, this newspaper is reporting, you know, about dinosaurs being found in Montana or whatever, that it's hard, you know, from our point of view, news is supposed to be objective and true and real, whereas at the time it was basically just, well, we'll report on the news and we got some pages we got to fill, so let's just come up with a good story. That's entirely... Yeah, that's that's very uh, easy to believe. That's very plausible. It would be interesting. Like, it's one of those things, like, you wish you could go back in time because it's like nowadays yeah. people might look at these archives and be like, they fucking believe this shit. Can you believe they, they believed it? And then, then, like, if you're then, if you were at that time frame, they might be like, oh, this is just – they just make up shit on Thursdays. You yeah. know, like no one, <laughs> maybe no edition. one, yeah, maybe nobody's done like, maybe no one's charted it out and it turns out it's something as simple as that where it's like, oh yeah, Thursdays they always just put out the craziest shit they can make up. It's like a, exactly. you know. <laughs> um, it was funny, I mean, a lot of like uh, cryptozoologists or people looking for ancient alien stuff, I mean, a lot of times they'll cite these old newspaper stories and I think, uh, you know, it's not that, they're, they're deliberately misrepresenting what they're finding in these old newspapers. I think, it, you know, it's like the Charles Fort stuff where he's just, you know, filling out these books with, like, hey, isn't it weird how all this stuff got you – know, basically, you know, everything Charles Fort wrote about is him just copying uh, these weird stories from newspapers that probably were not even true to begin with, and if they were true, were just exaggerated. Right, exactly. It's uh... – yeah, it's a like I said, it'd be interesting to go back in time and see what that perspective would be. And, and you're absolutely right. Where it's people, they they any sort of interpretation of past stuff or legends and stuff like that, they add their own spin to it. It's, I wouldn't even know yeah. if it was con- if it's confirmation bias or what, but it's sort of like they don't necessarily go, oh, well, maybe <laughs> maybe they knew this was bullshit. So yeah. it's entirely <laughs> possible. Um, Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, so I wish you were at, at the Flat Earth uh, thing. It'll be interesting. I feel, I, I mean, I don't know how closely you follow the uh, the field, but I think I was telling you before we started the show that it's like, I think we, I think, I think, and I did a presentation last October about this, or September, and it was the question at the end was like, have we hit peak Flat Earth? And I think with the pandemic and everything, I think that, I think that we may have. I think I, from what I've seen, a lot of the flat Earth people I know have moved on to uh, pandemic plan, conspiracy theories, which is very interesting. Because what I took away, people, I guess they, they probably don't even listen anymore. People, people who like, <laughs> I'm really super liberal, so I rip on Trump on the show. So, um, mm-hmm. but that's not what I'm getting. That's not what I'm getting to now. <laughs> people, that's one of the stereotypes, I guess. And it's like. Yeah. Oh, all flat earthers are just Trump fans and, you know, blah, 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 and that kind of thing. But to a man or woman, I found that they were surprisingly apolitical at at the flat earth convention. Oh, yeah. So them getting all pandemic-y was kind of mm. you know, disappointing in a way and kind of heartbreaking because it was like, oh, man, I came out of Dallas thinking that you guys were harmless and and you just believe something <laughs> kind of out of the ordinary, but you you know it's like yeah. people that there are people that believe in Santa Claus. It's like <laughs> well you're not hurting anybody if you believe in Santa Claus, so I can't really be a dick. But then when it's like once you get into yeah. the pandemic shit, then I then I'm like oh wait a minute I guess I guess I guess your willingness to believe anything is actually 
that's actually not a good thing. <laughs> well, just I mean, I feel like since we've been talking about QAnon, I mean, I feel like that's really explained the big change in QAnon. Also, I, mean, I feel like that's been a big pipeline into the Q followers is pandemic and everything associated with that and the anti-mask. Yeah. And I feel like that's been, it's just interesting that there's so like, I feel like that's shuttling so many new people into QAnon at the same time. I think I feel like we were talking about the flatters. I think all these new people who are joining QAnon don't necessarily know the background of their own movement, which sounds ridiculous because it's only like what two or three years old, but you know, yeah, they no, necessarily sure, yeah. know about like, you know, like the secret military tribunals to execute Hillary Clinton and this, you know, like the satanic, but they just know, all right, uh, they're anti you know, vaccine, they're against uh, mask mandates. Okay, I'm going to join QAnon. But... Yeah, yeah, it's that's a very good point, yeah, because it does seem like. If you talk, I, I know, I don't know about you, but I know, I've seen a lot of people I know, uh, not from the paranormal world, but like people I grew up with, and not a lot, but like two or three or four, which is actually kind of a lot, like if you think about people you went to <laughs> high school with, who yeah. who have gone like full-on pandemic, some to the point of becoming like QAnon people just since the pandemic started. So it's like this has somehow turned on a shitload of people to this alternative conspiracy world. And it's like, what the f- – and that fucked up part is they get radicalized so fast. Yeah, really? <laughs> I know. It's like it's so fast. And they'll be like, I just spent the last two nights straight without sleep watching you know, Fall of the Cabal Part 5. And it's like, you're staying up like – 48 hours straight watching, like, cheap YouTube videos. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, they get all frantic. Like, I've noticed they <laughs> they, they get all frantic, and they're like, we got to fucking save the children. We got to save the children. And it's like, yeah. <laughs> that was the big thing, like, this week, I guess they tried to, like, they were using save the children as the hashtag. That's and it's right, like, yeah. no, dude, save the children's already hashtag for, like, actually saving the children. So, mm-hmm. so... You know, not pulling a lot of fucking sex dungeons under underground out of the sewers, which is like, part, yeah. you know, the mole children. That's like part uh, of their the fucking mo- theory. I think the mole children may be my favorite thing to have had happen as a result of the coronavirus. Just like that becoming something that people had to actually talk about and just like, it's funny because I, I, I've heard that there's at least one or two of like the old school QAnon people who, for them, the mole children was just one step too far. And I know just recently, like the last week or so, one of the other big, uh, like, original era QAnon people left the movement, too. So I think there is this big turnaround that's happened. I think it makes sense, too, because, you know, if you're a QAnon follower and you've just been told for the past three years, you know, there's a secret plan and Trump is going to win and all this stuff and then just... He just keeps fucking up worse and worse and worse. I mean, it makes sense yeah. at this point. They're going to be like, maybe there is no plan. I'm going to head out. But at the same time, now there's all these. Yeah, it's interesting, too, because trust the plan. They used to be, you see that all the time with the QAnon followers. And I don't think that's really a part of, like, the new people joining it either. So I think in yeah, many ways, I think yeah. maybe that's even worse because it's just they have no, like, plan that they're putting all their trust in. So they can just be in it for the long haul and not feel disappointed or betrayed or anything when nothing happens. Yeah. Well, I got creeped out, too. Uh, 
went down a couple of rabbit holes this week, yeah, but I got creeped out by that in a sense where it's like if you really think about what they if you really think about like what they want um is they what they really want is like a fascist fucking government that rounds up all of the people they don't like and yeah. executes <laughs> them. And it's like that's a fucking <laughs> that's your fucking end game, guys. Like, no, I don't want any part of that. I don't want any part oh, of yeah, a fascist government that rounds up all the evildoers who you've deemed evildoers, like, and and executes <laughs> them. Yeah, it's just that's like, fucking scary. That that's really like what they for want. The better world is yeah, mass executions of like every like hundreds of thousands of people and so. Like, <laughs> Yeah, oh my yeah. god. Like then they're gonna get elected to Congress. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's uh oh, boy. It's pretty wild. Yeah, I mean, it's unlike anything I've ever thing, seen before. Well, I was just gonna say like looking into like the history of Boko Haram recently, like one thing I had no idea of uh uh before like really finding this recently is that the 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 thing that triggered the start of the Boko Haram uprising in Nigeria was that the Nigerian government passed a law requiring that uh, motorcyclists had to wear helmets because there are so many motorcycle accidents happening. And so the Boko Haram members were not wearing helmets on motorcycles, so they got arrested for not following the helmet law, and then that's the trigger that set off the insurrection. So finding that out and then looking at all the anti-mask protests, you know, like people armed with assault rifles, uh, (laughs) like going into state capitals, I was just like, if this goes on for another year, and you know, you know, say hypothetically Joe Biden is elected president, and there's a Democratic president who then passes, you know, like a national mandatory mask law, or I mean, like that's gonna, like, yeah, that would be like, a, like if this is the reaction when Trump is president, if there's a Democrat trying to pass this, I think that's gonna lead to, like, <laughs> armed insurrection, real, which is what a weird thing that, but to actually seriously think. Uh, yeah, yeah. I'm sure, like I said, most of the MAGA folks probably have disowned me by now. But yeah, <laughs> yeah. I've heard I've heard that theorized that if like Biden wins, we're going to see just like a lot of shitty domestic terrorism from people who don't want to accept what you know the change of the guard or whatever you know. But I hope that's not the case. I I yeah. just you know I get that they like to <laughs> Donald Trump a lot, man. But it's like I just want I just. I'm old or something. I don't know, man. I yearn for normalcy. Yearn for like <laughs> what I haven't thought about the president in like a couple of weeks. Yeah, that's that's kind of just what I. That's a big influence on my beyond everything else. That's a big influence yeah. on my. But I just want peace of mind. I just want I just want to go back to the quiet days when it's like, oh, oh okay, he's yeah, doing shit. I, he's taking care of shit. I don't need to worry about all this stuff. So. <laughs> well, let's see, we got a couple months, two or three months left. Yeah. Let's see how uh, crazy it, things get. Yeah, we've, got, we've got plenty of time for even more ridiculous, weird, bizarre stuff to <laughs> enter national discourse. <laughs> absolutely. Now I forget where I read this. I should. I'm really ter- terrible at terrible at citing sources, <laughs> but I read somewhere like that someone cited some articles. They were talking about, like, the UFO world. It might have been Sarah Skull's book, but I can't be sure. But uh, but it was sort of about – I guess I'm going to skip all that long-winded thing. I would like to see you tackle a, a book. If you ever ever have go down another avenue and you're looking for another thing to look at, would be 
this idea, kind of what we're talking about with the great moon hoax of uh, 1852, of like how long has this idea of aliens, for lack of a better term, off-world people, not gods, but like in a scientific kind of way. How long has that been going on, and how has that evolved? I think that would be interesting to to look at. Because I could have sworn the thing I'm referencing was like that, that it was like in the, uh, the late 1800s, early 1900s. You know, there were articles in the – people get all excited now, right? Oh, it's in the New York Times. There were like articles in the New York Times back then about how, you know, scientists of the day who were like uh, sort of arguing about whether or not there were beings – uh, uh, you know, a civilization on the moon or something like that. So it'd be interesting to know how but, far back that goes. There's a there's a good. I'm looking it up now. Okay, it's uh, the author is named Michael J. Crow, and the title is The Extraterrestrial Life Debate, 1750 to 1900. But yeah, it's pretty much it's a a history of this. You know, the idea of aliens you know, as extraterrestrials from the 18th to the 1900s. Uh, uh, I think it covers like Percival Lowell, but also like Immanuel Kant involved in that. Uh, but yeah, it's a uh, it's a good like, right. general overview. Yeah, but uh, yeah, I mean it is very interesting to think about uh, uh, you know, this idea of <laughs> just how the idea of like scientific aliens versus God being up in heaven, just that diverging and uh, the very the similarities and also why they start. In some ways, I think it's kind of like a secular version or religious version, maybe. Of, I was talking about earlier how cryptozoology and zoology you go far back enough are the same. You know, I think you go far back enough, some strange entity living in the sky, there's not really a need to differentiate. And then once you start getting modern ideas of astronomy, you have to divide that God versus alien part ways that way. Yeah, that's an interesting – yeah, exactly. At some point, there was some schism there where it was like mm-hmm. – it. yeah, because a lot of people do sometimes behave that in a way that these – if there are aliens, that they're like – that they are the gods. That's the idea, chariots of the gods, yeah, all that yeah. sort of thing. So it's like it would be – I'll have to check that out, that book. So now you don't have to do that research. Yeah. So. yeah. <laughs> You saved me uh, having to write. <laughs> now, what I was – you're like the – this is really weird, right? You're the only person I know who I've known uh, – you joked about it at the start of the show. Uh, but you're the only person I've known who became a doctor, like, since I knew them. So you kind of, like, <laughs> laughed about that uh, at the beginning of the show. Here's the funny part. When – I met you that that weekend. We went down to uh not you, not you and me, but me and a group of us from the thing went down to the Bissell Brothers Brewery next to Lawrence Museum and uh there was a young lady there who was celebrating that she had just got her doctorate. So and then uh when I left I kind of did the same thing to, that I did to you where I was like, Hey, you know, have a nice have a nice night, doctor, have a great weekend, doctor and she was like, "Oh, that's so, that's awesome. It's just so weird to hear." And and so you're that. <laughs> Even though I really only talked to her for like two minutes in line to uh, get beers at Bissell Brothers, she's the second. You're the second person I met who became a doctor. But you're you're actually a person I know. 
So um, <laughs> I just saw those weird coincidences. But uh, so I guess what is it? What, what's it like to? Is it weird? Do you tell people like? Did you have you? I obviously kind of like your Twitter, uh, Edward Guimont, and uh, is it Guimont? I keep wanting to kind of put a little Guimont, yeah, like a- accidents on it. <laughs> but but your uh, it's Edward Guimont, uh, the Twitter at e d w a r d underscore g u i m o n t. That's kind of your. You don't have a website or anything, so folks can no, find yeah. you on there. There'll be links up in all of America. Now. Uh, but you changed your thing to, uh, and, and appropriately, Dr. Edward Guimont. Yeah. <laughs> but what's it like? That's kind of one of those things where I'm like, shit, I should have fucking just done that. You know? I'm now, <laughs> now, I'm, now I'm 41. I don't have time to go and get a doctorate. You know? And I, I have very... <laughs> Yeah. I I have very low hopes that I'm ever going to get like an honorary <laughs> doctorate. So the the doctorateship has sailed for old and all. But what is it? What's it like? I kind of my brother's actually he's a do, uh, doctor of law. So okay, I, forget, I think that's like an, yeah. an LLC or something like that. But yeah, um, what's it like? Uh, what's it like getting a doctorate? Oh, I mean the actual the defense and passing and celebrating, that was definitely, I mean, the feeling was really good. And then now, after the defense, going back to work, <laughs> very little different. It's just, uh, it's it's the same. I mean, yeah, it's, uh, I, I changed, I, I felt a bit uh, self-conscious about changing the Twitter handle, but I realized I put nine years into getting the PhD, so I'm going to really, I'm going to ride that. I, I've earned putting a little doctor yeah. in front of my name on Twitter. But yeah, it's, I mean, it still it still does feel strange sometimes, especially when students will write an email to me or whatever, say, you know, Dr. Demont. But uh, uh, it's, it's, it does sometimes feel very surreal. But I mean, I do think if, if I could get a PhD, I think anyone can. That's not being self-effacing. I mean, I feel like if you, if you're just, if I could just do the work, I think many people can. But uh yeah, uh, so I try not to let it get to my head. I say that after yeah. mentioning how I'm uh, uh, promoting myself with doctor in front of my name. But uh, uh, yeah, it's uh, nah, dude, it's understandable. Uh, my my fucking brother, he's a dink. When he got, <laughs> I, I'll I'll he's he's like, you should never feel bad, dude. After this story, so my brother, yeah. he he cha- he got his doctorate. And he changed his fucking license plate in California to be like PhD LLC. So I was like, dude, like, what is wrong with you, man? Yeah. <laughs> like, like, really? You're, at first, I didn't believe it. I'm like, you're not really doing that. And I was like, holy shit, he really? That's his fucking now. Yeah, now someone's going. <laughs> I don't want any stalkers stalking my brother, but I'm sure uh, p- people have noticed. Yeah, uh, if they run into him out. In- <laughs> California, but yeah, I thought that was like the weirdest, um, weirdest thing. But so you yeah. shouldn't feel bad about changing your Twitter handle. That's the. <laughs> okay, yeah. I won't now. Yeah. <laughs> that yeah, like the it takes weirdest? more than uh, five minutes of you know just typing in something on Twitter. Then uh, I think that's too much for me. Yeah, anything less than that, I guess I can. Yeah. <laughs> now, have you? Uh, like what's next for you? We thought about writing a book on this stuff. Um, yeah, thought I mean, about I expanding this, will, this stuff this into a book. This will definitely eventually become a book at some point. I don't know when exactly, but I think I've I've accumulated 
too much. Uh, <laughs> I put too much work into it for it not to see the light of day someday. But uh, uh, so really, the whole thing with this whole pandemic just putting so much research and pause. I mean, I think I think really across academia, there's going to be a bit of a lull and stuff coming out. But uh, I mean. Yeah. That's just life right now, I guess. But yeah, it's uh, the mythical someday once, uh, uh, you know, after QAnon has purged the world of the evildoers, we're all going to be able to get back to work. And uh, mm. <laughs> and then uh, hopefully then the, uh, well, I'm sure I'm probably on some QAnon list somewhere. But <laughs> I'm sure we are. Well, what's the, yeah. it's really cool what you're doing uh, because there's always, I always, it's sort of, I don't know if it's a stereotype or I guess an urban legend or a misconception maybe where it's like, I think, and I even, yeah, it kind of got me when we were talking about what we were going to talk about on the show tonight, uh, back, well, a couple weeks ago when I was like, all right, you're okay to talk about the flat earth, right? It's like you're a genuine <laughs> yeah. history professor at UConn. It's like, has there been, I guess they're cool with you sort of looking at shit like uh, the, the, uh, the old Zimbabwe city and lost cities oh, yeah. and Mbembe and that kind of stuff. It's like, that's pretty awesome that you're, there's no pushback on that. Oh, no. I mean, yeah. I mean, I think there, there are certain topics in academia. I think that if you go into them, I think you're going to face a lot of pushback and maybe some other schools. Like if this was, I don't know, like, like, uh, especially there's a big difference between private and public schools. Uh, but I mean, I think most private schools probably would be fine too. I mean, uh, I mean, I was, I've been very like after we went to the uh, uh, cryptozoology conference, I was talking about that to uh, a lot of people. You know, they're real interested in hearing about that. Uh, uh, I gave uh, a version of my uh, Mokele Mbembe paper to the history department at UConn. Uh, uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's they're in general. You know, I think they take a very expansive view on history and you know what's legitimate to study. I think very few things are really off topic in that point of view. That's good. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's funny. Yeah. Cause I, I've probably experienced more, <laughs> more pushback in the paranormal <laughs> community than you may have in, in academia as far as like looking yeah, at the flat earth. Cause I've had me. people <laughs> like every time I talk about it, I have to like stress, like I'm not a flat earther folks. So <laughs> I'm just interested in it. And <laughs> No one, no one ever believes that. Yeah. <laughs> when I when I interviewed Mark Sargent, uh, God bless him, he just he took his end of the recording, he taped it on his end and put it on his YouTube channel. So, um, which is fine, I don't care. Um, I just thought it was funny, and so I got, could look at the comments, and the people there were like, "No fucking way, this guy isn't a flat earther. He knows too much about it. He knows too much about it. He's a." He's a closet flat earther. It's like, no, dude, I, I just find your culture fascinating. But, uh, maybe someone, yeah, if, so. if someone approaches me and asks me if I'm really a closet flat earther, I'll take that as a mark. Oh, I was going to say, I would take that as a compliment. Maybe I shouldn't, <laughs> but uh, no, I, would, yeah, <laughs> I would be happy. Almost a worrisome that. compliment. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I've had a few of those, but. <laughs> yeah. Well, I always say I'm a, I'm a friend of the flat earthers. Although, although yeah, as I said earlier to you, it's like I don't know about these flat earthers. Stay in your lane, flat earthers. Stay in your lane. Yeah. Just do the flat earth thing. <laughs> Stop getting into this fucking pandemic shit. It's not. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's, it's it's not. You're not ready for prime time with that stuff. But Oof, yeah, yeah. It, it's 
Because I've had people that are like, why are you, why are you even, why are you talking about this? Why are you even, why do you care about this flat Earth stuff? It's like, why do you care about <laughs> UFOs? Like, I want to know. Exactly. Yeah. I want to know why these people believe in such a, a an old and repeat, you know, repeatedly disproven conspiracy theory. Like, how can this still be popular? That to me is the most fascinating part about it. Yeah, I mean, it's yeah. I mean, I think that's really the big question: is why does this like? On the one hand, it's such an – you can understand why people would think that because, again, it's so intuitive that the Earth is flat, the Earth is not spinning, the horizon's flat. If you're you know, on the other side of the Earth, and you'd be upside down. So there's – on the one hand, it's very intuitive. On the other hand, it's so easy to disprove on every level and has been repeatedly, and you know, so much of the modern world is based on stuff that would be impossible with a flat Earth. So it is this interesting, like – back and forth between, on the one hand, you can understand why people believe it, and on the other hand, you can't understand why people believe it. <laughs> yeah, it's very, uh, it's very, very strange. Um, and I, 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 I like, I, I mostly like all the people, even though they can get pretty aggressive and everything. So, um, I, th- I think they're all right. They're all right, yeah. folks. Well, we'll see what happens when the uh, pandemic comes to an end. Uh, yeah. I want to thank the show has pretty much come to an end. So I want to thank Jim Vujovic, who joined us in the chat. Uh, my buddy Jack Brewer, who was listening and sending me comments on Twitter. And uh, Eaten by Bears, who just popped into the chat room and never did anything. So um, I want to thank those guys uh, for listening. And I'm sure I'll have you back on the show, buddy. I, I really enjoyed the conversation. And, uh, you know, we'll we'll see where things go. Should people just follow you on Twitter? You don't have a website or anything like that, right? No, nah, no. Nah, if I have a website, I will announce it on Twitter. So until then, just <laughs> follow me there. But, <laughs> but yeah, so I had a great time. And hopefully, uh, yeah, have me back anytime you want. Definitely happy to come back and contribute to whatever I can to any topic of discussion. But Absolutely, man. Well, you're looking into stuff that I'd never even uh, – Somebody, a couple of people just now were like, uh, as the show ended, they were like, "Holy shit, that went by fast!" It was like, "Yeah, that was a." Yeah, this did, yeah. <laughs> that was a. I'm like kind of stunned, but well, uh, I can talk for a while, but I don't want to keep you too much longer. We'll uh, no. We'll see what happens in the world of the flat Earth. I think. Uh, I don't know. I think that. I think. I, mean, uh, I, I think that. For the trauma support. Yeah. Well, here's what I think happened. <laughs> I, I know. Well, we I think I talked to you about – we're still recording, so uh, just a heads okay. up. Um, but I think – because, yeah, well, I don't want – you know, I didn't want you to be like, uh, yeah. what are your audience assholes? Or I don't know what the fuck you'd say. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's just polite to let someone know you're still recording. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, that was like the most controversial words I could put, <laughs> put yeah. in your mouth for that hypothesis, hi- hypothetical situation. But I, what I think – this is my theory. I don't know if I talked to you about this off the air, but since we'll, can, if you got time, you want to talk a little bit longer? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. All right. Um, my theory is that based on what I've seen in the history of all this is that like this thing, as we talked about, it's like a wave. It comes up. And uh, it captures the imagination of the public. And then, but science doesn't know what's happening. And then it gets publicity through the media. And then scientists like recoil in horror 
and then they sort of rush in to just debunk it, and then that breathes oxygen onto the fire that's sort of kindling, and then it blows up, and then it sort of slowly dies out, and that's then then it you know then it kind of goes dormant for another generation or so, and the same and then it happens all over again. That's kind of my theory. Yeah, it makes sense. I, mean, I think there is a case where, yeah, like I mean, like you said, there's the movement rises and it's kind of you know relegated to the fringe, and then it has its breakthrough moment. And I think, like what you said, like when people initially try and debunk it, uh, there's this you know the whole debate about should you debate uh, creationists, and that was a big thing a few years ago. And yeah, I think there is a big argument that you know just ignore, like don't get involved because anytime you try and debate them and not only brings attention, but it, you know, makes it seem like it's right. a legitimate argument. I mean, like you don't want to make it seem like, Oh yeah, maybe on the one hand we have to give equal attention to the earth being flat just because, you know, it's a legitimate point of view, but I think just anytime there is, and it's a well-meaning attempt too. like, I, I understand why uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson spent so much time trying to debunk it, but it's, I mean, he's just, he's not equipped to do that. And I think he didn't realize that. And I think maybe it isn't that, but it's, it's interesting because I think the first time I heard about the modern flat earth movement was 2016 and really started like in 2015 or so. And so, yeah, it did take about a year for it really to come to my attention, I think. And I think that is a case of it's after people started, you know, trying to object to it, that it really went mainstream. Yeah, well, it's funny. Uh, I'm sure he would not like to know this, but in my interpretation of things, the catalyst for uh, the cycle that I'm talking about was Neil deGrasse Tyson. When that rapper, yep. uh, B.O.B. or Bob, I, don't, I never yeah. know which way to say it, um, <laughs> when he endorsed Flat Earth Theory, it got a ton of attention in the press. And if they had just ignored it, it would have, like, gone away. But then he rushed in to to smack him down with science. Um, yeah. <laughs> and, and then that was, like, then that was, it added, like, a whole other layer. And like you're saying, it added this legitimacy to this. It, it became now there's a debate. There's, a, mm-hmm. there's apparently now a debate over whether or not the earth is flat. <laughs> Where before people just went, oh, he just believes in something crazy. That guy, oh, he's so he's so silly saying that, um, you know. But then, but by adding that fuel to the fire, that awakened all kinds of other people who had either young people who had never heard of the flat Earth theory, or even older people like me who had heard about it but never really. I mean, I guarantee you, like a lot of people listening to tonight's show, um, again, we, they have like no idea where it came from. Where if you talk like a UFO. Person, they can kind of trace it back to like 1947 and Roswell yeah, and Kenneth yeah. Arnold, or if it's like ghost people, they can kind of trace it back to like spiritualism and that kind of thing, or or Bigfoot and the Patterson Gimlin film. It's like all those subjects have this rich history, and the flat Earth has a rich history too. But no one, no one, no one in all in, in the field of the strange wants to give it the time of day because the theory is so bad. Exactly. Yeah. It's- yeah, and uh, I think the other thing, too, and this may be a specifically American phenomenon, I think it's also whenever there's, you know, random people coming up with some idea and then you get 
the quote establishment coming in to stamp them down. You know, I think there's a big reaction where you know people love underdogs, and so naturally they're going to see oh these these highfalutin scientists are saying you know that this this common sense guy is wrong, and I'm going to go just with the common guy. You know, even if I yeah. don't necessarily believe it, that's you know, I'd rather side with them than uh, these ivory tower government sponsored you know scientists. Yeah, it's like, who do these scientists think they are? They could just tell everyone what to think. It's like, well, yeah, yeah. they're just telling you, <laughs> they're just telling you that the <laughs> Earth is, that the that the Earth is round. So I think part of what's hurting the, I think part of, I guess, I need to look deeper into this. But my other theory is sort of like that. I don't think that the flat Earth theory can sustain a fan, a, a, a fervent fandom for very long because it's not mm-hmm. like these other fields where it's there's all kinds of shit happening in the UFO field right now. Um, but even like this Bigfoot sightings, ghost people get quality ghost stuff. Even even conspiracy theorists and researchers are, get conspiracy stuff. You know, they're always in downtime. Now they're, they're always interpreting stuff that could tie into their conspiracy theory. But it's like the flat earth is like – no pun intended, it's like flat. It's like there's no, like what else can you do with the flat earth theory? Like every, after, you, after you've done the rudimentary experiments or whatever, like, like you, you, nothing's going to prove that the fucking earth is flat. So how long can you really invest in that? That's why I, I was wondering if there's going to be other people trying to build their own rockets after, uh, was it Mike Hughes? Uh, I guess he didn't blow up because he crashed, but, uh, but I really thought like, – I thought either he was going to be – he was going to die doing his homemade rockets or someone was going to try and go to Antarctica and find the ice wall and they were going to, like, you know, freeze in Antarctica. And I thought one of those was going to basically put an end to it. But it, uh, uh, it doesn't seem like uh, Mike Hughes in and of him, himself dying had any big impact. If anything, I feel like uh, – uh, <laughs> He was dying after the initial uh, wave was already receding. But I wonder if there is going to be, uh, you know, maybe in 20 years, someone basically trying to, you know, buy an Elon Musk rocket to prove for themselves. It seems also like like you'd think if NASA is in charge, you know, suppressing everything, they'd be loving Elon Musk and his private rockets. But it seems like they just think he's part of the same conspiracy, uh, uh, which given how much federal money, Funding he gets, fair enough. But uh, uh, yeah, of course. Although, knowing Elon Musk, I bet it may not be. You know, at some point, he may be like, "Our rockets have proven the Earth is flat," or something, just just to get attention. Seems, I mean, he did. I, he did just endorse ancient aliens. So it's, uh, <laughs> yeah, I I bet you. I'd have to look, but he's such a mercurial Twitterer that I almost can guarantee you that it's come up at some point that he's made some crack about the flat earth people. So it's, yeah. uh, I know he, he's it, a, or he at least used to be big friends with Neil deGrasse Tyson. I don't know if that maybe is cool recently, but yeah, who knows? Who knows? Yeah. <laughs> I want to like Elon Musk. I, I like SpaceX, but Elon Musk, he's just such a kind of a dink. So yeah. I find him really unlike. <laughs> Unlikable. He goes out of his but, way to make him. I think he goes out of his way to make himself unlikable. <laughs> for whatever. Yeah, it's really weird. <laughs> it's really weird. It's uh, very performative. Like 
Uh, yeah, the whole thing with oh, naming yeah. the baby, like some crazy fucking <laughs> math equation and shit. It's like, just stop, dude. Just, you know, you're like that kid in high school who just has to, who decides he's going to fucking, you know, <laughs> yeah. bottoms for a semester or something. It's like, all right, all right, mm-hmm. everyone's, pay, everyone's paying attention to you, Randy. Okay, we, we, yep. <laughs> we notice you wear bell bottoms. It's awesome. <laughs> but, yeah, it'll be interesting, the, uh, the Flat Earth folks. They seem they they seemed like nice people. I didn't really. Uh, yeah. Okay. I I felt kind of bad for them after I came out of the whole <laughs> event because people are really fucking mean to them. Well, that, oh, that's that's the yeah. thing I was going to mention. The so this was an interesting experience I had. I haven't told you about is the so I gave a presentation on the flat Earth theory to uh, like a Skype group uh, about a, a couple weeks ago, and um, the <laughs> I noticed I have to watch this more now. Which actually has happened now at twice of my presentations, quote unquote. But the the someone on the Skype chat or whatever the Zoom thing, I said like at the beginning, I'm like I'm not a flat earther. I'm not here to like make the case for the flat Earth, um, or or make the case against it. So it's I'm here to talk to you about the history of the flat Earth. And in in like two, well the, the more the more pertinent one, the more relevant one happened a couple weeks ago where. One of the people in the chat, after I finished it, was like, they just wanted, like, they were, like, obsessed with, like, poking holes in the flat earth theory. And it was like, <laughs> look at, you know, and they're like, well, why do they, why don't they sail to the edge of the earth and see why? It was like, it was like look at, I'm not a spokesperson for the flat earth theory. Yeah. <laughs> I'm I'm just a guy who's done a lot of research into the history of the flat earth theory um, listen to my interview with Mark Sargent. That's where I ask all these questions that you just asked. Um, yeah. <laughs> but I cannot defend their <laughs> their their inability. But like, that's the thing. I've noticed just telling people about the history of it, they get all antsy, and they're like, "Well, why don't they? Why don't they do this and yeah. that?" It's like, all right, just just fucking just relax, dude. Just relax. I don't I don't know why they won't. You know. Because they're, yeah. cause they're flat earthers. They don't. They can't sail to fucking exactly. <laughs> Antarctica, dude. Yeah. <laughs> they're just like, why don't they? You know, why don't they accept that uh, you know moon rises over the horizon? Well, because that's their belief. <laughs> like, yeah. I might as well ask that, like any like religion. Like, why why don't they accept that? Uh, you know, Jesus probably didn't rise from the dead. Well, that's the core part of their religion. Why? I guess. <laughs> Right, exactly, yeah, yeah. So it's uh, it's very interesting. It's very interesting. I do love, yeah. I do love. Uh, someday I was asking you about a book. It's like, yeah. So I, we've talked about this. I've thought about writing a. Yeah. yeah. I, I need to see what this other this this uh, this woman who's writing a flat Earth book. I need to see her book first before I, because <laughs> I, I don't want to commit I, to I writing. I sent her an email once. I uh, I never heard anything back. So I don't know if she's swamped or uh, she's she's a reporter for Vice, I think. But yeah, something like that, yeah. And she got a book yeah. deal to write about the flat Earth. I was like, oh no, yeah. I hope, I hope, uh, you know, I hope it's good. But we'll see. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, maybe I should contact her and be like, but I'm afraid she'll, <laughs> I'm afraid she'll become yeah. a flat Earth sympathizer. Like I'm not a sympathizer. <laughs> I'm just I'm trying to study these people too. So yeah. <laughs> So what have you looked at now? We, you know, you've done the woolly mammoth. You've you've looked at the Mokele. Is there anything sort of that's piqued your interest? 
I mean, you said you were going to be doing some traveling and stuff, so maybe you're going to expand on that. But have you? Is there anything yeah. on the horizon that we didn't talk about tonight that might, you might be digging into down the line? Well, one thing I've, I've been interested in uh, kind of looking at, like uh, the history of like phantom airships, like those turn of the century, like quasi. Oh wow! UFOs. Yeah, that would be awesome. I, I think that's just an interesting. I don't know exactly what to do with that yet, but it's it's an interesting. Like kind of like it's like an early UFO. It's, it's about like exactly 50 years beforehand, but especially in New England, there like a uh, 1909 and 10, there was a specific uh, uh, airship that was seen around then. So it is a regional thing. Uh, also, been interested in uh, uh, melon heads, those cryptids in uh, uh, mainly oh, Connecticut, but also the Midwest. I've talked a bit with a. Uh, Lauren and I'm a, uh, Jeff Belanger. I've had a few back and forths with them about, but uh, yeah, so it's just, it's, I don't know exactly where either of those will go, but I've done some looking into them. I'm sure at some point, some work on that will emerge, but yeah, so those are just kind of two, uh, the regional, uh, uh, regional fringe stuff that I'm interested in. All right. Well, I'll keep an eye out for that. And, uh, oh, yeah. Let me see here. And folks can find out, uh, they can follow you on uh, Twitter at Edward Guimont, and it's uh, A-D-W-A-R-D underscore, that's the easy part, G-U-I-M-O-N-T. So once again, Edward underscore G-U-I-M-O-N-T. We'll have links to it on Banal America and all that good stuff. Um, Well, brother, I can't thank you enough. I really did appreciate this conversation. It was a lot of fun, and uh, it flew by for sure. Yeah, I really do. Yeah. <laughs> Best um, Friday night I could talk longer, while. but I'm worn out. It's been a long day, so uh, I gotta I gotta call it quits before I start. Like, uh, once I, I get you. deeper into yeah. the conversation, then I kind of just it, get, it becomes like sleepy time. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, so uh, but I want to thank you again for your patience, man. After that disaster a couple of weeks ago, it looked uh, uh-huh. we're, people tuned in and worked. they said it worked out great tonight and I, I can't wait Perfect. to roll this out to the uh the podcast listeners because this was a fucking awesome conversation. So Oh yeah, this is great. Yeah. Thank you very so much. So hopefully I that. see you once you know, I, I feel like I don't want to get ahead of myself because who the fuck knows what's gonna happen in this world, but yeah. <laughs> but there's a part of me that's like feels emboldened in a way. I've sort of talked to people in mass about this where it's like well, you know, once this shit's fucking finally over with, maybe, you know, not necessarily do conferences or anything like that, but maybe just like some kind of like gathering or something, you know, where people yeah, can hang cool. out and have we'll have speakers or something like that, um, you know, sort of break the break out of the quarantine that everybody's in and, and get yeah. a chance to hang out and meet meet people and shit. And so, that as you a fellow in New Englander, I'll uh, have, yeah, you know, definitely bring you in for that. We gotta stick together for sure. The Yankee Absolutely. <laughs> for sure. Oh, let me ask you this. I I meant I had this in the mental notes and this will be the last thing, then we'll get off the year, but uh you <laughs> you mentioned I made a joke. So uh, the the local news posted some story. I made a joke about how New England should secede from America and people got like really pissed, <laughs> like New Englanders, which was really weird. Um, yeah, but then you jumped in and, and, and mentioned some kind of thing that happened where it was proposed. So what what the hell was that all right. about? 
Oh, yeah, the Hartford Convention. Uh, it was in uh, the War of 1812, uh, but uh, representatives of most of the New England states, I think it was all the New England states except for Vermont, I believe. But, yeah, they sent it, – it was not – it was one of those things where it was not officially about secession, but, you know, everyone knew it basically. But, yeah, they sent all these delegates to uh, uh, Hartford to talk about it, and then, uh, you know, basically they just, like, agreed to meet and talk about it again at a future point, but then uh, uh, the war ended and it kind of seemed like uh, suddenly took on a different light. You know, New England seemed like it was about to split right when uh, uh, the war had just been won. But it was one of the big downfalls of the Federalist Party, uh, a part of the big reorganization. But, uh, yeah, it's it's funny. There's a lot of – every once in a while, some memory of that will – uh, pick up again. I know there's there's some group that does advocate for like New England secession now. I don't think they're very big, but the the idea is yeah. still swimming around. But, uh, but yeah, I'd so be all for the old that, state man. house in Hartford. Uh, uh, they have the room where it took place there. It's uh, uh, an interesting time oh, wow. for sure. That uh, I, th- I think the Southerners, like in the 1850s, started looking back to it as justification for their separatism. But uh, Oh, yeah. wow, interesting. Oh, yeah, it's not as uh, well-known, I guess, as it used to be. Yeah. yeah, I'd never heard of it. So, yeah, you're like my source for weird and unusual uh, <laughs> uh, history stuff that's even that's like in the in the history books. So, uh, yeah, we'll definitely talk to you again. Man. Consultant. <laughs> there you go, exactly. Yeah. All right, brother. Well, on that note, I, I can't thank you enough. I really do appreciate it. Folks should follow you on Twitter, and uh, I'm right. sure we'll be talking again in the future, man. Absolutely, yeah, and thanks again for having me, and uh, can't wait to talk to you again, and hopefully some, hopefully someday soon see you again. Absolutely, man. We'll be in touch. Have a great All weekend. Right. Have a great rest of your summer. Thanks, man. You too. All right. All right, folks, there you go. That was Dr. Edward Gamont. Uh, I think I fucked up the name there at the end, but uh, maybe Guimont. There you go. Uh, that was an awesome conversation. That, that was that was great. Uh, that was like smooth jazz, man. That was just a great back and forth uh, talking about all this stuff. So I really appreciate uh, him coming on the show. And also, his, like I said, his patience a couple of weeks ago when things went haywire. So, uh, you know, I guess uh, it all worked out in the end. And then again, it's kind of like what I mentioned at the start of the show. Uh, sometimes when these interviews go south, the second one time around, it works out better. I don't know why. Well, I don't know if it would have, but you know what I'm saying. Anyway, all right. On next week's program, uh, it's going to be August 21st, 9 p.m. Eastern time. We're pretty consistent about this. If it wasn't for uh, Blog Talk screwing us a couple weeks ago with Ed, Edward here, uh, we'd have a fantastic run going. We've still got a great run going, but uh, we'd have a streak going. But that killed the streak. Be that as it may. Next week on the program, we're going to be talking about Liminal Earth, the website. Uh, I'm going to have as the guests, the creators, Jeremy Puma and uh, Garrett. I don't have his full name here, so I was not prepared for this plug, and I apologize to next week's guest, and now it's not coming up on my thing. Anyway, Anyway, we're going to have uh, Garrett and Jeremy on the program. Um, Garrett Kelly, there you go. Garrett Kelly and Jeremy Puma on the program to talk about Liminal Earth, we talked about it uh, a couple of weeks ago with Kiki Dombrowski. Uh, it's this website. It's liminal.earth is the website. 
And it's like this map, this Google map that has all kinds of uh, wild and crazy uh, people send in their experiences, and they uh, post them on the map. And if you, you know, if you live like in uh, Arkansas or whatever, you can go, you know, in your neighborhood there and see uh, what kind of stuff may have happened around you in your state. It's sort of like, uh, as Kiki said, Atlas Obscura is where you go to find strange places. And Liminal Earth is when you come back and you report the weird shit that happened to you. So they're going to share some of the wildest stories that they've received at Liminal Earth. We're going to talk about, uh, you know, how it all came together. And uh, I'll probably talk about some of my experiences visiting uh, strange unusual sites this summer here in, uh, in Massachusetts. So, yeah, that'll be next week, Banal America, 9 p.m. Eastern Time. Garrett Kelly, I just messed up. What am I? What's wrong with me? I'm tired. That's why I said to Edward. Oh, Garrett Kelly, Jeremy Puma, Liminal Earth, Liminal Dot Earth is the website. Next week, 9 p.m. Eastern, two hours live, but all of America. That's the plug. Oh, and with all that said, once again, thanks to Edward Gamont for joining us, Doctor Edward Gamont for joining us on the show. Jim Vujovic in the chat, uh, eaten by bears, the silent chatter, and uh, Jack Brewer sent me messages during the program uh, to ensure that I was on the air and broadcasting, which was the critical part here, and uh, it all came together, so, uh, and all you folks out there for listening tonight, I appreciate your uh, patronage, and with all that said, this is Tim and all, thank you for listening.